0: Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads, and ladies, and those that don't subscribe to our agenda, welcome to the GOT Guy Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee Spencer. Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Today, we are reviewing season eight, episode three. The Long Night. I like the title. A dig in the title. Long mm-hmm. Night. We did a reaction pod. It was electric, I would say. We were fired <laughs> up. We were super excited. We've had like three, four days now to mellow, to read the criticisms, um, to be indoctrinated that this was actually a bad episode. Uh, Spencer, has that worked for you?
1: I've not gone anywhere near that far. Uh, I'm ultimately of two minds, as we will see, between what this episode is as its own independent medium and how it fits into the overarching story of the show. I've got different views on those two things, but I've remained just as excited and just as pumped and just as complimentary of what an incredible episode this was in its own right.
0: Yeah, I'm there with you. I'm a little little irritated with some of the, the criticism online, but I mean... Uh, pretty much everything gets criticized too much online so i mean i think that's like kind of on brand for online mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but yeah we can talk about let's hit a couple of the main criticisms up front because if you're listening to this you likely listened to the reaction pod if you didn't go back and check it out we were pretty great uh you've probably seen the episode by now and if you're listening to a two and a half hour review pod of game of thrones you probably uh, do follow some of the, uh, the commentary online. So you probably know some of the stuff. But number one, with a bullet, biggest problem everybody had. Spencer, it was too dark. You know what? I did not notice that at all. At all. I've heard
1: several people complain about that and then go back and watch it on a higher resolution screen and have absolutely no problem. So this sounds like more of an, a tech, an individual technolo- technology difficulty rather than something that's on the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) here's my problem. Um, We know the show well enough to know it should be watched in the dark. Yeah. Um, For multiple years in my old house, we would have a Game of Thrones viewing party, uh, which we need to figure out if we're doing again this year. Uh, But we had a big open great room, and I would rent a projector screen. And inevitably, we would be really excited on a Sunday afternoon, and we would want to start watching Game of Thrones episode. And we couldn't because it, <laughs> the room was Dude, full of windows. Bryce. It was too light. Yeah, we had to wait till night. And as soon as it got night, we could watch everything perfectly. I watched this episode on a on a 4K television. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm privileged. Uh, and I had the lights off except for one little side light. And I did not notice an issue with darkness at all. I will tell you, though, that in doing some of my notes, I did it on a laptop. Um, and I did it when it wasn't completely dark in the room. Mm-hmm. And if and if you do you do watch this on a laptop and you do have lights on in the room, there are there are long periods that are completely dark. Um, so I don't know, man. It's I mean the majority of people watch this show. They pirate it online. They watch it on their laptop, laying on their bed. That's not the way to watch a show. No. So I'm I'm not particularly sympathetic to it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of tossed this criticism. It did not it didn't land with me.
1: Yeah, th- this is the kind of episode you really needed to watch with stadium seating in a theater. It was a Hollywood production. It needed to be watched under Hollywood conditions. Um, I get that certain scenes were dark. I get that some people got lost in the fog of war, but from what we know of the director, that's very much his style. He likes you to be so as lost as the characters are in the particular scenes. He likes it to be chaotic. He doesn't want you to... Be constantly certain of the battle that's going on around, uh, where, wherever the camera is currently set. So, I get why some people complain. I know some people have complained about this. Those that those of them that have then gone back to watch it and watch it again in the dark on a high-resolution television or just under better conditions have come back saying it was the finest television they ever watched. To
0: a person. Yeah. I agree, and also, can we dispense with the criticism of the cinematographer? I don't know if you've seen this story, but the cinematographer said, "I know it wasn't too dark because I shot it," and everybody thought that was like a really pompous thing to say. But if you've ever actually gotten into photography or, or uh, you know filmmaking, you—I mean, at a very basic level, you will understand what he's saying. He's saying, "I shot it." I. When I shot it, I saw what was being shot. Right. And I could see it. So that's not the problem. There's something else going on here. So I I, I actually am sympathetic to what he said there, and I think he's getting crushed online. Right. And he shouldn't be. So all of our tens of viewers uh, and <laughs> listeners, um, just just don't don't criticize the cinematographer. He I mean, had a point.
1: One thing, I, one, one thing I've heard before, which could also be a cause of it too, is that a lot of people, more people are probably watching it now on HBO Go than are actually watching it on HBO on their television. Um, and HBO Go, though perfectly reliable for me, can occasionally have buffering issues. And if you couple buffering issues with a already dark screen, you are in for a bad time. Uh, yeah. It, very, <laughs> pixelation will very quickly make it make already existing shadows an amorphous
0: blob that you cannot see through. Sorry, folks. Watch it on the TV. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> second main criticism is the Army of the Living didn't know what the hell they were doing. Uh,
1: what do you think about this? Because I think it has some merits and some weaknesses based on, well, I, I think there's some points and some weaknesses to that argument. Um, I think we
0: get to it during the recap.
1: That's yeah, fair. We can watch it play out and and do it and, well, respond play by
0: play. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump into the recap. Before we do so, Spencer, do you want to talk about Mangum Reads?
1: <laughs> on Mangum Reads, we have been addressing a surprisingly parallel work, which we didn't really know when we agreed to do it of the second book of the um, Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. The stories of Dunk and Egg as they wandered the Seven Kingdoms about 80 years before the beginning of the of the, more, of the major Game of Thrones series. We're going through the second book, A Sworn Sword. We did the first half last week and we were wrapping it up I believe tonight. So you'll probably, probably be able to listen tomorrow before we then move on to a very, very different work in the fifth season. But
0: having a blast doing it and hope everybody's enjoying listening. Giving BJ a lot of credit on the editing timeline there if you're going to record tonight and it's out tomorrow.
1: I count on his I count on his abilities using technology I do not fully understand.
0: Credit to you, Spencer. You're doing like a good five hours of podcasting tonight. And by the way, you left work early, so I'm just wondering, has the firm gone under? I mean, how, you, this doesn't happen.
1: Uh, the firm has not gone under as far as I can tell. I've got my phone right here in my pocket to see various emails that come in, and I'm hoping for no exclamation marks on these things.
0: Yeah, Okay. All right, let's get going. We start with the opening credits. Yep, more changes. I'm digging this. It looks like they're going to do that every episode uh, this season. It looks like Winterfell is completely under siege by Winter.
1: Yeah, ice is fully descended. Winterfell is surrounded. It is under attack. And I am left very, very, very much uncertain and excited for what they're going to do next episode, given how this one wrapped up.
0: Yeah, that'll be fun. Uh, then we cut to Winterfell. And uh, first thing we see is the shaking hands of one Samuel Tarly. Um, And there's a lot of people just moving around, and you can tell that they're nervous. Of course they're nervous. Um, The Unsullied walk by. Uh, Sam sees the line of folks going to the crypts and gives a little sneer and resolutely walks away. He's not going to the crypts, but the next person we see Tyrion is. Tyrion is walking to the crypts. And then we see Bran with Theon with the Ironborn. And shout-out here! Number one shout-out with a bullet first part of this episode alice car stark i was not
1: expecting her to go out marching with with the ironborn but apparently she stood and died with them i didn't expect that
0: isn't it stunning that can, you're a book reader yeah that they have taken the car as the ones that ultimately are loyal to the starks and the umbers and the glovers as the turncoats it's such an odd what shift. the hell <laughs> i mean what? it doesn't check out i mean it, it is fair that her book
1: equivalent does demonstrate the potential greater loyalty to the Starks, and particularly to John and works with him in a variety of ways to maybe support the North remembers cause. But it's just an interesting shift to see who are the most loyal northern families they've just straight thrown into traitorship over the course of these last few seasons.
0: Yeah, uh, so Alice Stark going to the God's Wood. Everybody's on the move here. Uh, Davos is manning the Wall with what looks like northerners. Sansa and Arya are also on a wall, I think a separate wall. Mm-hmm. Dragons fly over. Now, I, they have got to give this to me. Uh, I don't know if it's next episode or in the resulting two, because we only have three left. Yeah. At some point, someone has to talk about the fact that all of a sudden Jon's
1: riding a dragon now. It's amazing to me that they've just treated this as just another thing. Uh, I, I don't get that. I don't get that no one's just going, Well, haven't seen that in 150 years. Another person riding a dragon? Well, okay.
0: That's just another day in the north, apparently. Now, think about the god level status that John has to be. John, here's what he's done. He went to the wall, he became an extremely young Lord Commander. Mm-hmm. He got murdered, he came back to life. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. he took the wildlings south of the wall, mm-hmm. brokered a peace deal with the wildlings, in theory, defeated the Boltons and took Winterfell back. Mm-hmm rode south as a Stark and was successful, yeah, and, brought the brought and, the Dragon Queen back with the biggest army anybody's ever seen, and now is riding a fucking dragon.
1: Yeah, and also don't forget being christened king in the North in the process, and then giving it up and taking the title of Warden in the North, and people still supporting and following him. It, he's
0: had a hell of a run over the last few seasons. What the fuck? The fucking resume for this guy. I mean, man, his CVs—he's one of these like forty-page CVs. Yeah, uh, I nor- that was impressive.
1: I normally recommend keeping a resume to one pager, but this one just reads well. Just keep going with it.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, the dragons fly over, uh, cuts of formation outside the walls of Winterfell. Two main things make little sense here, Spencer. This is what we're talking about with the beef of the uh, battle strategy of the folks in the north. Number one, why are the Dothraki out in front?
1: Well. I can offer an explanation that might make a certain degree of sense, but I still think it's a dumb call. Fire away. Uh, best explanation I can offer is it's just taking into account the uncontrollable sensibilities of the Dothraki. That they are a group that is built on charging, they are not a group that listens to orders or instructions. If they see a mass of infantry in front of them, they will ride them down. We know that's part of their history, it's part of their most famous battle, the Battle of Kohor. that... Regardless of it, whether it makes sense or not, they will ride straight in and try to cut down infantry even if they're dying in the process. So, putting them in the front respects the fact that they will be very inclined to just ride over one of their allied infantry you've got in front of them, or not obey orders in the first place, For, for like, like if you instructed them to secure the wings in a way that would make more sense. So, putting them in front and using them in a roughly suicidal fashion may just be respecting the fact that that's about as much use and control as you're going to get out of the Dothraki under any good circumstances. It's not the most tactically wise decision, certainly, but it may be the only one they were left with.
0: Okay, I've got a basketball analogy. Please. Uh, so, you, you college, college, follow college basketball, or if you're just a human, you probably heard the name Zion Williamson. Um, <laughs> he, is a, he is a guy that Duke paid to come play uh, on their basketball team. And he could dunk the ball really hard. He was very, very popular in college. He's going to the pros now. I think this is a situation where, like, Zion would be on the court and he'd be like, I'm going to go down. I'm going to take four steps and I'm going to dunk it. And they're going to be like, well, there's a guy down there named Giannis Antetokounmpo. And he's going to be like, yeah, but that's what I do. And they're Mm -hmm. like, okay, go for it. And then his Arak light will be snuffed out by Giannis Antetokounmpo. (laughs) Much the same way (laughs) that our poor Dothraki, shout out to the Dothraki. Uh, get hits No, I think I think you're right. I think it's a case of overconfidence from the Dothraki and nobody really being in a position to tell them no. Yeah, I, mean,
1: um, I think that's one of the best ways to interpret it. If they were a more disciplined cavalry arm, like if we had some more substantial forces from the Vale, the Knights of the Vale still here, it seems like it would make sense to keep them either reserve or on the wings in a way that you can then cut around the enemy and use the mobility for their advantage rather than just charging into it, an unbreakable block of undead. But. D- the Dothraki are not a disciplined cavalry arm by definition. They're unquestionably skilled, but this is not their war, as we've often discussed.
0: Yeah. No. Um, second thing we have a problem with. Uh, this one to me is indefensible. Now I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay in the lane of this is a top five episode for me. Yeah. Um, uh, it's top five Game of Thrones episodes of all time. Nonetheless, this one not defensible. The, the Unsullied are in front of the trenches. Uh.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't really get that. I, I get that they want to use the trenches as a last line of retreat, and be- perhaps they... Why?
0: Could... Well, why, right? Why would you wait until you a bunch of humans... Have, like, why wouldn't you start with the fire pit? Mm-hmm. We know that fire kills them.
1: My guess is they literally did not have enough time or pitch or resources to make a trench big enough to accommodate the army. That They've got a force that is large enough and capable of buy- of buying extra time with their own bodies in a way that they couldn't fully encircle with this just magical pitch trench that they were able to build in short order.
0: I don't know why you don't, like... Okay, so that's fair. They probably couldn't fit all the the Unsullied behind the line. But why wouldn't you at least start with the trenches and then when they come up to the trenches knowing that they can't all run through the flame mm-hmm. and then just pelt them with dragonfire, with trebuchets, with, with arrows, and just thin them out as much as you can before they start passing through the trenches.
1: I mean, the best explanation I can offer, and I think it makes a certain degree of sense, is just limited time to prepare the field in a way that would have been more ideal. That they've got limited resources and only a matter of days to get ready what they could for this battle. And the main resource they have is bodies. They don't have the engineering necessary or the time to put together these kind of elaborate trenches and traps that might have disrupted the army in a way that would have saved lives. What they have is people that are going to hold it with their own lives. Um, yeah,
0: I just keep I just keep going back to the fact that, like, you know, you would have maybe Bronze Jan royce who just says, um, uh, y- Your Grace, um, w- we need to keep the men outside the trenches. And then he grinds his teeth and he goes, yeah, put them behind the trenches. <laughs> uh, and he goes, but, but Your Grace, what we have as bodies, we don't have as many as the dead. Get them behind the trenches. If Stannis was there, this would never would have happened. Probably
1: not, but again, we've got people like Brian and Danny calling the tactical shots on this rather than experienced battlefield
0: commanders. Um, And and obviously the dragons are underutilized. I mean, that's just, that is a common theme.
1: uh, Under or overutilized, depending on your point of view and whether adhering to their strategy would have been more successful, which is the point we could discuss. Uh, One last tactical decision. I'll note that I did not think made any sense. Uh, Why put your artillery in front of your infantry? Presumably, you want to keep using the mass, the things that are, you know, firing flaming bolts into the big mass of the enemy. Perhaps put them behind a few lines of your infantry so you can keep doing that throughout the battle, rather than spend, presumably, a lot of time and resources to make all of these trebuchets and catapults to fire them once.
0: Yeah, I actually don't have as big a problem with that, because the way that the army of the dead fight, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the launching... Yeah, like how much space you have to have between you and the enemy for the trebuchets to be effective mm-hmm. is so far that you really only are going to get a couple shots in before they just rush you.
1: You could have gotten a couple shots in, and given how large this mass of people is, even if you're only hitting the back of them, you're still killing hundreds of each shot.
0: I don't uh, feel good about the trebuchets either. Like why, why didn't they just have barrels of oil? They may
1: not have had that much in
0: the way of oil. I mean, yeah. we
1: don't have any reason yeah. to believe that there are substantial oil stocks in the north. I mean, just the fact uh, they're... The, became...
0: the Unsullied had them. Or not the Unsullied. Sorry, the, uh, the Night's Watch had them.
1: Night's Watch had them, sure. But Night's Watch did not evacuate all of their resources when they went south of the wall. I mean, Night's Watch could have been assembling that oil, that oil for literally thousands of years to use it when they did, rather than just have it on hand in every castle in the north.
0: Yeah, I don't know. We're we're down a rabbit hole. But I, I think that the one that is indefensible to me... Is you, you got to put people behind, um, you have b- behind your flaming uh, trench. I think that's that's yeah. probably. That's to a hard one to argue against. To offer
1: an odd historic example, I mean, in pretty much every siege, you'd be inclined to think that people would just stay behind the walls and just shoot from cover there. But pretty much every siege we have record of, uh, the defenders would almost immediately sally forth and fight in front of the castle before then eventually going back into the castle, suffering six, often significant losses in the process, but seemingly having a purpose or reason behind it. It's often reasonable, but it, some historians have debated that it may have just been part of the morale effect, that if, by immediately retreating behind the walls, you in some way lose a certain degree of initiative and a certain degree of motivation to keep fighting. The, there's a value to psychology in a battle to having an idea of a redoubt behind you rather than already being within it.
0: Yeah, I'm just picturing Stannis grinding his teeth oh. and telling you telling you that he held Storm's End. Uh, he grinds his teeth every
1: breakfast when he finds out it wasn't his <laughs> preferred flavor of cereal that was out there. Come on.
0: <laughs> yeah, we needed Stannis here, but uh, good old Brienne cut him down. Um, left flank, led by said Brienne, seems to be a collection of Knightsfield and Northerners, just like you called out. You are absolutely right on a rewatch of Season 8, Episode 2, that they actually did put the little sigils of most of the armies. It It's really cool. Room. So you could, you could tell, yeah, I really like that um question for you um are all the wildlings except for Tormund dead because didn't they all go to Eastwatch to man the castle presumably a lot of the wildlings got away because so we saw some wildlings
1: with Tormund and Beric that was similar, like, like the primary group of them that were roaming the halls together in the uh, last hearth and we saw what seemed to be a so fair amount of wildlings with Tormund and Beric standing in the ranks I thought
0: yeah I, I, I couldn't tell and so that's why I asked the question um then we cut to back out with the Dothraki ghost ghost is there He's out, out front. with Jorah. With right Jorah? Yeah. With Jorah? Yeah, he's a Mormont. He smells the north in him. He? Yeah. He, he used to know a Mormont. Sure. But with Jorah rather than who, maybe with somebody else? Who else would he be with? I don't know. John? No, John's got a new pet. <laughs> That's not nice. It's true. Um, yeah, Jora ghost is out there with Jorah. Now, here's something I've noticed about all of the ghost scenes. Mm-hmm. In this episode, every single one of the Ghost scenes, no one is interacting with Ghost. My question to you, did the showrunners get halfway through filming this and look at their Twitter mentions and go, Jesus Christ, we got to get Ghost in this thing. And they just started dropping him in scenes?
1: I think it's a mix between that and also fur is really hard. Let's not have anyone near him to interact with the damn fur.
0: Yeah, but they could at least acknowledge that he's there. It seems like weird writing. Um, but anyway, Ghost was there. Uh, Ghost has a really funny moment that we'll talk about here in a moment. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but but your girl, your number one, your uh, bestie, Mel, walks out of the darkness. How the hell did she not get got by the army of the undead?
1: The power of light compels her. I mean, Melisandre's role in this battle is very much as the avatar of the, of the, of the God of Light, of the Red God. She is displaying magical power beyond which we've ever seen her before. She is showing up at the moment that they most desperately need her while seemingly walking through the mass of the dead to get there.
0: She's nuts.
1: And the moment this battle is done, she burns out like a cinder and disappears into ash.
0: She so, is nuts. Uh, hey buddy.
1: Yeah, he has to make a cameo. You know, yeah, you're, he, you're just talking about Ghost. You want you want to express his, his support.
0: If you want to mute for a second I can go for a while. Okay, go on a Uh, second. Yep. Mel asks Jorah to tell the Dothraki to light, lift their aurochs, which in a really interesting moment, she says, like, um, you know, hey, do you speak their common? Do you speak their tongue? And Jorah is so dismissive of Mel immediately. She, he just gives her this look. He finally nods. He, she says, tell them to lift their, their aurochs or swords. She probably says swords. Mm-hmm. And she walks over. She grabs one. And she says a Valerian prayer. Only says it once, I'll point out. So she had a lot of faith in this one. Mm-hmm. And all of the Aurochs, for all of the Dothraki, immediately light up. Big sweeping music comes in. And Raymond Gwaldi, you can say what you want to about this, the battle plan or this episode being dark. You're not going to say shit about the music because that was incredible. Um, folks on the wall seem completely amazed. And you look out and in this huge swath of uh, cavalry now have lighted swords.
1: And it it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. I I, I can't compliment enough the cinematography and the sound and the build-up of tension that is happening coming up to this moment. I mean, I think we talked before about this director the cinematographers, that they love wonders. And when we first see Sam walking around, there's like a three-minute tracking, well, I won't exaggerate, but there's a couple-minute tracking shot that's just one scene of just following people around as they go, which is already impressive filming. But this building up to this moment is just non-stop tension. We're like, you know, it's Alfred Hitchcock and we're waiting for the bomb to blow up under the table kind of thing. It's we're waiting for something desperately to happen. We're waiting for the end of the charge so we can release this tension. And in this moment, when Melisandre has appeared out of fucking nowhere, has walked up to the Dothraki and has just activated the signal fire of her power upon thousands of, of, of seemingly obsidian rocks right there in front of everybody, I don't know about you, but I was cheering too. I had hope in a way that I had not building up to this moment. And this starts... A trend throughout this episode of playing with our emotions, of giving us hope and snuffing it real quick.
0: Yeah. So, and it, what I thought was interesting is that at this point, John and Danny are like on a cliff very close to the battlefield. They can see what's going on, and all of these Aurochs light up. And I could just imagine Danny being like, What the hell happened there? And he's like, oh, it's a witch who brought me back. It's cool. She does a shit. Um, all of the Aurochs are lit up. This gives the Dothraki. A little bit more confidence, obviously. Big sweeping music. You can see the shocked look on the faces of all of the people watching. Except for one noticeable non-shocked face. Um unimpressed gray worm gives a little bit of a scowl <laughs> and looks at Mel as she walks by. She says Valomagurus. He says Valadihris. Uh and he just kind of looks at him. He doesn't he shows no emotion. Uh, and then the Dothraki take off. And this yep. is a gorgeous scene. I mean, you get three different shots here. You get the POV of the riders. So you're down near where the saddles are. You get a shot that's clearly like a, um, a a big drone that's following maybe about 15, 20 feet above the horde of horses that are going forward. And then you get what I think is the best shot, which is John and Danny standing on this cliff. And they can only see these little pockets, hundreds and thousands of pockets on of light that, that was
1: gorgeous, simply gorgeous. That last scene that you just described, uh, I was in awe as I was watching that just unfold as the light just charges out in an arc into this suddenly visible mass of darkness that's on the edge of the battlefield.
0: I agree, I mean, it, that was probably the most beautiful part of the episode. Um, and it's interesting because John and Danny both kind of got fooled, just like the viewer. They looked and said, Oh, god, maybe it's going to be a little easier than we thought. And it was interesting because we saw this shot of the Dothraki kind of come into the wall of the undead. But from John and Danny's perspective, they started to figure out pretty quickly, okay, none of them are getting past the line. They are all hitting the line and dying.
1: Which is the death knell for light cavalry like this. They have to get through. They have to keep moving. Otherwise, they're going to die where they stand. And we see that unfold real quickly.
0: Yeah, it happened I mean, the Dothraki. We talked about this in the uh, in the reaction pod. The Dothraki literally got snuffed out in like a, a matter of like ninety seconds. Which all we know, as I mean, Danny had united all of the Kalisars and Essos. This is this is all of the Dothraki, and so we might have just witnessed. The, the end of the line of Dothraki, which we've already pretty much seen the line uh, of the wildlings end, and so many great houses. And so in the period of, of this, this story, this eight episode or eight season story that we have, so many lines of very interesting, either houses or groups of people have been snuffed out. And I think you're going to get more of it because I'm not sure how many Unsullied are going to live either. Uh, it was, it was really sad to see the Dothraki go out like that.
1: It, it was sad and truly surprising. it just really shows how well the show is playing with our emotions over the course of this episode that like them, we had hope for
0: a moment there and it was snuffed out literally as we saw under a giant's foot and All right, I'm gonna point out something for the the listeners here. You're hearing a lot of background noise that is because Spencer has chosen to live in Florida. <laughs> And it's, yeah. five o- it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and 5 o'clock in the afternoon the floor Florida, the ass falls out of the sky, so that's what's going on right now. But we're going to try to make it work. We're here for you. We're here for the people. Go ahead, Spencer.
1: As best we can. Sorry, folks. Uh, but yeah, it, it is a wonderful scene if we just suddenly watch all of the lights go out, and then there's just a pause. And then you see a handful of stragglers of the entire Dothraki Khalasar stumble back in. Jorah with them. Uh, most of them off horseback, just looking wide-eyed and confused. And then all of the rest of the army is just left to wait for a beat. And then you can just hear the sound of thousands of charging feet all coming at the same time. The sound work in this episode is perfect. It's so great to build the tension the way it does.
0: Yeah, the sound was great. Uh, I would like to point out something. So a lot of folks I've seen commenting saying, oh, well, isn't it it, uh, convenient that Jorah lived? Well, if you close watch the episode, Jorah leads the charge, but then he falls back. Um, it, you can see a scene very, very clearly. He's in the, in the lead, he's charging, and then he puts the brakes on and he goes to the back of the pack. Which is exactly what he should be doing. Um, he's the commander, he's there to uh, motivate them, get them going, but he should not be at the very head of the pack. Uh, so it was a smart move on his part, but it is it is consistent he would survive.
1: I agree. It, it does not surprise me in any way. Also, just point out reasonably, he's the only one wearing full plate armor.
0: It's going to be hard
1: to just knock him down very quick. So for him making it back, i got no quant- I got no problems with that yeah, at
0: all. He probably would have fallen off the horse, but whatever. That's <laughs> all right. Um, this, Danny becomes enraged when she starts to figure out what just happened, as I would if I was her. You just lost half your army or more, probably more, um, in a matter of seconds. Uh, she says, I'm sitting on a nuclear weapon. I'm not going to not use it. Sean says, what about Bran? She says, the dead are already here hell of a scene the flare of that targaryen sort of uh temper comes out and it's a good damn thing she does because yeah. the unsullied the unsullied are gangster as hell the unsullied do everything they can here but they really needed the Dragonfire to thin out that horde
1: and it comes to the practical question of danny doing this though is violating their plan that their plan was we stay in reserve and we kill the night king that's our job that's the th- that's the thing we need to do Danny immediately breaks that and effectively moves the dragons out of position for the rest of the battle.
0: No, yeah. not for the rest of the battle. And and she was right to do it because it would have been over before it began if she had not done that. Maybe. And she she is in she is in position with Drogon close to the uh, close to the gods. When she actually gets flame on the Night King later, so. Maybe. You know, she, I I very much defend Danny for doing this here. I mean, you you, especially that initial shot of the Whites hitting uh, the Unsullied. That was that was terrifying. That was a more it wasn't terrifying gonna it wasn't seen. gonna last for fifteen minutes after that if she didn't come in.
1: It's very possible, but it's one of those things of where if they were able to successfully kill the Night King, if they were able to lure the Night King to the Godswood the way they planned and just kill him there then none of the battle outside particularly matters. You've already destroyed the army that way, and potentially you're destroying that before so much of the rest of the battle occurs. But the dead are d- already here. Well, the dead are. The Night King had yet to commit. And, they were ins- and it's possible, and we're going to debate this to what the hell Bran was doing, that Bran was trying to draw the Night King to him right there in the Godswood, so they could, as planned, take him out there quickly rather than have to endure the army for too long.
0: Yeah, and I think he was doing that. But, I mean, I think what Danny was saying is... That's a great plan, but we, the Night King's not here, and the dead are overwhelming our army. Like, we, we have to do something. Uh, so, I'm glad that she did that. Um, the Army of the Dead smashes into the Unsullied. Unsullied are doing everything they can here, but my God, they are just being overwhelmed. Brienne, the battle commander that she is, tactician that she is, she's probably thought about this for for days, if not weeks, uh, to develop the perfect <laughs> battle strategy, mm-hmm, screams, mm-hmm. Stand Your Ground! So and that that's is—that's what she had to offer. And that is pretty much her
1: only order of the day. Admittedly, this isn't a battle where, we're, you know, complex tactical decisions are likely going to serve much use, but pretty much Stand Your Ground and Retreat are about the only orders we see her perform.
0: Yeah, really, really great there. And even up on the wall, it looks like Jamie starts to take command from her a little bit, which probably should have happened to begin with. Uh, but anyway, man, do I miss Stannis? I'm going to say that probably five more times this episode. Everybody's getting destroyed, and is that Danny's music? Oh, shout out to the ringer! Danny flies in and starts burning the army of the dead. She's thinning them out, and then you can see that the the, the unsullied can kind of get back in formation, take a second, regroup. Uh, and what surprised me about this scene is that John followed her with Rhaegal. Yeah. Now, now question to you. Yeah. Yeah. Was this John saying, okay, my queen has made a choice, I'm following her? Or is this Rhaegal saying, I like you, John, but I'm following Mom? I'm betting John. It seems like they've
1: made Rhaegal very much just a subject to John's will in terms of what they've depicted and shown from here. Uh, so I'm betting John decided, okay, queen's gone, maybe she's right, it's not going according to plan, but no plan survives first contact with the enemy anyway. Hoorah, let's do this!
0: I think so, too, because you never see him trying to pull away. And as a matter of fact, he's very strategic in how he's moving Rhaegal around during the subsequent battle. So it doesn't seem like he's an unwilling participant here. Um, we The Unsullied are now able to handle business a little bit better. Arya turns to Sansa and says, go to the crypts. Sansa mutters some really lame excuse. And Arya hands her a dragon glass knife. And she says, I don't know how to use it. Arya says, stick him with the pointy end. Great line. Great Love call the back. callback. Absolutely. I actually called it when we were watching it. Yeah. Sarah, I'll tell you. I actually said, stick him with the pointy end at the same time Maisie Williams did. But I got to tell you this. They wanted to get to that line. Stick him with the pointy end. But in doing so, they made Sansa a person who doesn't know what to do with a knife.
1: <laughs> well, there's knowing what to do with a knife and there's knowing how to use a knife against somebody that wants to kill you. There are two different
0: things. Stab them. I don't... I mean, that's all. I mean, what did what did she expect Arya to give her like like a tutorial and like close hand combat like stab him? That's it. That's all you can do. Uh, Theon is with Bran in the Godswood. Beautiful scene here. I mean, this whole set with the Godswood and how they have the circle of the Ironborn and Karstark around Bran um, with the light, you know, for the arrows. I thought that was it was a gorgeous set. Remind me of one thing. Wasn't there a bl- a black pool of water right in front of the weirwood
1: tree? It was or basically to believe it's frozen over in winter and that they're kind of standing on it.
0: Uh, that that has been a subject of a lot of confusion in the fandom. Um, in earlier seasons, there was um, a pond in front of this godswood and in later seasons, there hasn't been. I don't know. Uh, we you could just say that it's frozen over. You could say that it's inconsistency. I'm not sure.
1: Okay, just 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 checking because I did like the pond, and the pond is actually a keep uh, in some ways direct well directly referenced a couple times in the books. So I just wasn't sure if, uh, how they were what they did with it.
0: Well, Theon brought more people with him than I had realized um, because it, it does look like he's got a pretty effective perimeter uh, to stave off uh, the the dead, maybe longer than maybe you and I would have guessed. Cut to the battle and Jorah gets knocked off horseback. Thank you, God. Jorah, why are you still on horseback? Get off horseback. Uh, Tormund and Jamie are kicking ass. Uh, Jamie holds his own here. He needs a f- he deserves a full and complete pardon. Uh, from Danny for for what he did here. He was very heroic, and Torment, of course, always balling out, always kicking ass. Sam gets knocked down, almost killed. Ed saves him. Here we go. Pour a little bit out for Dolores, Ed. Spencer, get the Kleenexes out. Ed gets stabbed through the back of the head. He seems to realize what happens right before he died. He has a terrified look on his face, and Sam shuffles off. This one may have hurt me more than almost any of
1: the deaths in the episode, of where just how it played out, his little last words to Sam, and it being
0: unexpected in a way most of the other deaths weren't. This one hit me deep. Yeah, it's tough. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about the actor John Bradley that I read in EW. Now, you don't follow this stuff as closely as I do, but EW, do week, week by week, EW will have a, a article about the show, and they'll give you a little behind the scenes. This week was all about Maisie Williams learning. Um, spoiler alert from the end of the episode of She Kills the Night King. <clears throat> there was a... Uh, a article when the when the trailer was released, and in it they were talking about the person was talking about how he had gone on set. He can't talk about any specifics, obviously, he signed an NDA. But one of the vignettes he could tell was that Miguel Sapochnik was watching John Bradley fight, you know, and it, just some sort of fight scene. And the guy from EW says to Miguel Sapochnik, "Hey, like." man, he really looks badass here. He's really killing it. And Miguel Sapochnik says, cut. And he says, yeah, that's the problem. Sam's not supposed to look badass. This is wrong. Sam needs to be more clueless and he needs to be fumbling more than this. He can't look like he knows what he's doing, which I thought was a funny little story. And and it's appropriate to his character where Sam throughout
1: this episode truly does hold his own in Shilohin with bravery, but it's of the flailing kind. Right, as it should be. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he's literally stabbing people on the ground while screaming as people are eating him. He's not standing up like Brienne and Jamie cutting artful swaths through the enemy. That's just not what he is and what he can bring.
0: Yeah, so we cut to Sansa walking into the crypts and Tyrion looks at her and she gives him a sort of shit isn't going very well look. And Tyrion pieces together what that means. He takes a swig of wine and walks off. Cut to the dragons who are flying blind, and they actually run into each other, which I thought was kind of funny.
1: Well, it, just, just to reference why they're flying blind, at one point as they're lancing through the enemy troops, we see John notice that the line of the White Walkers is standing at the forest edge. And John, smart one that he is, goes, okay, I kill them, a lot of these dead are probably going to drop. So he swoops down to go after them, and suddenly the Night
0: King pulls his trump card. He literally brings the storm. Are we sure he's not a Baratheon right now? Mm, we don't use that expression anymore. The Night King uh, pulled a ace out of his sleeve. And <laughs> yeah, he did. The The winter came and, and there was a big winter storm. So it decreased the visibility. That had a lot of practical implications for the Army of the Living later. But right now it just means the <laughs> dragons ran into each other.
1: Yeah, dragons ran into each other. And in relatively quick order, uh, having you know endured the literal tidal wave of the undead, the two wings of, the, of Danny's army, the army of the Light or Living, whatever you want to call them, retreat in the face of this storm, while the dragons are fumbling into each other at high altitude.
0: Yep. Then Brienne calls for a retreat, and the folks from Bear Island are inside, which I thought it was interesting to put, you know, a group inside. I thought that was a smart idea, mm-hmm. and the Bear Island probably had enough folks that that made sense. Although it's weird that Lyanna Mormont seems to be in command of the courtyard of Winterfell, which. I know that she scares everybody, but that's not a good look. She's so she ser- calls for... She's essentially
1: ahead. serving as the cast She's guarding the door. She is the senior door guard.
0: Yeah, that's what you want. Nine-year-old. Um, <laughs> 92 pounds, soaking wet, mm-hmm. controlling your, your door. But she does call for the gates to be open at the right time. Grey Worm. I, I can't say enough about the Unsullied. Oh, God. Again, mean, the Unsullied be
1: paid this episode. No question. I,
0: multiple, on multiple rewatches, I get more and more sort of like weirdly emotional watching what they do. Because they are, they, are the, they are the definition of what they were built of. Oh, yeah. how, they act in a way that is completely consistent with how they were built. And that is, they, are, they do what they are instructed to do in battle. They are selfless and they are effective. And Grey Worm screams, protect the retreat. It's fascinating to think back. This is really
1: the only time we've gotten the, to see the Unsullied in their element. This is the only time we've seen them in lockstep, rigid formation holding the line against an attacker that's trying to overwhelm them. We've never gotten to see them fight for what they were ultimately trained to do. And in their hour, God, do they rise to the occasion. They die standing as everybody else retreats around them. They buy a retreat. In I love the little movements as they just open up to allow the people to retreat and then close the formation immediately afterwards. They're literally dying in lockstep as the fires are being lit behind them to buy minutes and seconds for more forces to get back into
2: Winterfell.
0: Incredible. Um, I still can't get over the fact they shouldn't be in front of the trenches, but whatever. Uh, John, look, here's the thing. I like John. Obviously we talked about his resume. It's impressive, but he needed a, and I'm gonna give you three names here. Tell me if you disagree with any of these three. He needed Stannis Tywin or gasp, even Ramsey.
1: In terms of a what, strategic or tactical planner for this battle. Yeah. 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 It would have helped even a Ned Stark. Ned Stark was a hell of a tact, was a tactician at this time. <laughs>
0: Not uh, maybe not in the show. We didn't. See not in, that, but we not to see it in the show.
1: The books definitely. He won Robert's battles for him.
0: Yeah, Tormund is still kicking ass during the retreat. I got I. Tormund makes me laugh all the time now, and I don't know if that's just because I've I'm unreasonable. But even like I was belly laughing watching Tormund only because like it's just so funny to me that he is still alive and he's he's still kicking ass there were multiple scenes where like and this is later in the episode where like Brienne and Jamie and Pod were up against a wall and Tormund was still out in the open just flailing and nailing yeah. people <laughs> the, the visual of Tormund and
1: Gendry standing on a pile of corpses like 9 feet high many of whose corpses many of corpses are reanimated and trying to grab them with the fire silhouetted behind them was just incredible it's just like there goes a man, right there.
0: He God, it's amazing that he's still doing his thing. I guess it's that Giants milk, man. Giant's oh
1: yeah, milk. Work, works well. Product endorsement.
0: Some Unsullied do get through the gates, though. I do note, I do notice them. So I don't, I don't think we lose all the Unsullied. But uh, Grayworm calls for lighting the trenches, and Davos waves the torch. As Danny said, he was completely capable of doing on his own, which it turns out he was. But Danny and John can't see it. They didn't take into account that the Night King controls the weather. They, it, then the, the people on the wall try firing arrows at the trenches, but it won't light.
1: It's an interesting scene too, because it seems like that there was, in some ways, a plan that the Unsullied might retreat back through the walls. They might, you know, buy enough time for everybody else to get back, then go back themselves. But you see a scene of Grey Worm looking over what's happening, seeing Danny's not coming, and he just grins and bears, bears it, and he breaks the trench, and voluntarily making probably the right decision given what he's seen before him sacrifices the bulk of his brothers to the undead horde in front of them
0: yeah and he at some point looks at melisandra and says well she started a fire about 20 minutes ago so maybe she can do it again and he brings her over she has her own little like uh secret service that takes her to the trenches she puts her hands down she starts a Valyrian spell i don't think it's the same one that she used for the orcs maybe that was the problem uh, she says it over and over and over again. Second time we've ever seen her do this. Getting desperate. <laughs> she gets desperate with the Valyrian spell. She's not sure that it's actually going to happen. And I think part of it is she's not sure it's going to happen, but part of it is she's just like looking around, and there's like undead people are like five feet from her. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's not. she doesn't have a big line in front of her. It's just one line of Unsullied guys. Finally, it lights and it's a gorgeous scene when it lights i mean cue the music the fire is much bigger than i would have anticipated which tells me they probably treated it with oil or something like that and it just erupts and when it does danny looks down and she's able to see that the trenches got lit this has to make her feel both good and bad good in the sense that without dragon fire they were still able to light the trenches bad because they're now in retreat formation They've, they've pulled back into the castle because there's no other reason they would never light them with the army still in front doing well I mean the oh. only reason they'll light the trenches is because you've now retreated to the castle
1: and, and Danny and John are still lancing through the army and as you talked about the fire effects in this episode are gorgeous some of the finest fire effects I've ever seen them do going back you know like to battle of blackwater with the wildfire explosion but seeing them light light the dothraki arcs seeing them light the trench seeing just the lances of fire that are coming through the walls of undead it's just gorgeous to watch play out
0: I completely agree Arya and Davos are watching from the wall at this point Arya is still just kind of watching things uh, it looks like her and Davos have some bit of a rapport because multiple times during this episode they're either near each other or they give each other knowing looks mm-hmm. the hound nopes the hell out of there he is <laughs> dead soon as soon as the trenches go up he, he hides uh, hmm. everyone is standing around looking at the undead who have stopped uh, incoming because of the, the firewall. I don't understand this. I don't... Why, why did they stop? Like, The
1: they, undead they, they, or our heroes?
0: No, our heroes. Why didn't you just keep firing bolts into them? Why didn't we keep raining dragon fire on them or throwing things at them? What, like, do you think they're just going to turn around? They're I, eventually going to come your way.
1: I think they still are, but it's the curse of limited point of view, of where none of our main characters here are really serving as archers, or at least not for very long. I mean, there were several moments where you, like, you'd see... Um, Jamie say, draw. I'm like, oh my god, are they not firing already? But there's arrows constantly going in the background. You con- Every time you see out into the field, Danny's lancing between them. So I don't. I think just because they didn't emphasize it doesn't mean it's not happening. What I don't understand, and this ties into what you were just saying, why they don't already and immediately man the walls. Why do they need an order ten minutes, five minutes later to suddenly, okay, everybody get on the walls, now it's battle again.
0: Don't get that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I took that to mean... Um, hey, um, uh, first team all Westeros. Uh, we need to be on the walls now because they b- basically put everybody that has that are that's very skilled or has you know really valuable weapons in the fight. I get up that in
1: position, but why not do that immediately after you've retreated into the castle? Why wait to do an order until they're already because... streaming over the fire pit?
0: Because Brienne is leading this thing. <laughs> okay,
1: we're going back to that again. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, second second uh, Stannis shout out since I said I was gonna do it five times.
1: You are pissed at Brienne for killing off Stannis, aren't you? That's something you'll never gonna forgive, is it?
0: Coming back to bite her now. Mm. Arya and Davos, of course, watching from the wall. Um, we cut to the Crips and Varys looks distressed. Varys, I'm gonna I'm gonna call this one. Varys was not an MVP.
1: Yeah, I mean, Varys,
0: Varys line this is this is like game six of the finals. Uh, NBA finals. And Vary's line is like six minutes with two fouls, 0 for 1 from the field. Four turnovers. I understand some of those words. <laughs> yeah, he does nothing. Uh, Tyrion, is, and we predicted this, Tyrion's not going to like stay in the Crips, but he did get an order from his queen. He's trying to comply. And he says, if we were up there, I might see something everyone else is missing, something that makes a difference. If I was up there now, right now, Sansa, you'd die. There's nothing you can do. Tyrion, you might be surprised at the lengths I'd go to joining the Army of the Dead. I can think of no other organization less suited to my talents. Witty remarks won't make a difference. Is it just me, Spencer? Or is all of a sudden Sansa and Tyrion are talking to each other like like a couple has been married 20 years?
1: Well, you know, they've been married for three. Because as far as we know, their their marriage was never officially annulled. So yeah, they're pretty quickly going back into the Sansa-Tyrion relationship in these scenes that we see play out. And they're kind of fun. I was kind of into the seeing them banter and interact.
0: Yeah, I, I was. They they did it re- really quick. Um, you could you could quibble with how quickly they reestablished a connection, but I by the end of it, I bought it. I think they're, I think as long as they're alive, they're probably going to be uh, a thing.
1: We we, we got to address what is probably going to be my vote for best line of the episode, though, in terms of Masinda's utter sarcastic snark oh, that she throws getting, at Santa. Please. I'm
0: getting I'm getting there because there is another line of the episode that we potential line of the episode we could talk about. Uh, Sansa says, the most heroic thing now we can do is look the truth in the face. And Tyrion says, maybe we should have stayed married. She says, you were the best of them. <laughs> Tyrion, what a terrifying <laughs> thought. Good line. Uh, Sansa says, it wouldn't work between us. The dragon queen. Your divided loyalties would become a problem. I think she's flirting here. But she probably just doesn't realize that Missendei in like a uh, shouting distance. And Masende just says, yes. Without the dragon queen, there would be no problem at all. We'd be dead already, and she walks off.
1: I enjoy that Sansa needs to keep hearing this apparently, because <laughs> this is now the third character that has told Sansa,
0: "Get over it. Danny's necessary to our continued survival." Yeah, God, she and like I, I hate this. Like she still has this assumption that after this is over, that she's going to be in conflict with Danny. Like it's like s- settle down with that shit. Like you,
1: you, you guys ought to make it tomorrow. Work.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Theon notices they lit the trench, and he tells that to the the Ironborn and the Carstarks. I'm not quite sure what that means to him. Like I don't, like I don't know if he thinks that's a good or bad sign. But he does inform everybody that they lit the trench.
1: Mm-hmm. And the,
0: go
1: ahead. No, I finished the thought.
0: Uh, no, I was going to go on to well, another part of this. Well, he,
1: he, he lights the tr- lights this trench. He's clearly trying to keep everybody pumped and informed and part of the situation. But what's interesting is then he then turns to Bran. So I think is where you were going next.
0: Yeah, he does. He walks over to brand and says, I just want you to know. I wish the things I did. Everything you did brought you to where you are now. Where you belong. Home. And I can tell Brand is just handing out pardons like it's his last two week at the president. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> <laughs> like he got he, he's a he's a one termer and it's like it's like Christmas and he's just handing out pardons. Everybody's getting a pardon. It is very easy to accept
1: an apology and just provide forgiveness when you really don't give a shit anymore. Brand's not here. Brand's essentially apologizing for other people. To use your presidential analogy, it'd be like, you know, a president nowadays apologizing for abuses done to the Native Americans. There's no personal stake in it anymore. It's it's like it's somebody entirely else that it was done to or it happened to. So, yeah, it's I, I it's nice things for Brand to say here, but let's not forget that Brand does not see himself as Brand anymore to feel offended by the crimes done to him.
0: Yeah. I agree with that about 60%. Um, So anyway, we cut to Bran wargs into ravens, which I... Okay. Okay. Presumably to find the Night King, which he does. And the Night King is very high and he's on Viserion.
1: And then what does Bran do afterwards for the next 50 minutes?
0: No fucking idea.
1: No idea. This is something the fandom has just gotten itself twisted into knots. Because everybody assumed that Bran would serve as something other than the princess in the highest tower of the castle with respect to this fight. And unless his role was essentially baiting the Night King, which fine, that makes sense, that's part of their plan Why does he then stay working for the next 30 minutes until the Night King shows up? What's he doing? We don't see his ravens anymore
0: I have no idea
1: All we can do is ponder, and maybe have explained to some degree in the next episode because there's I'm gonna,
0: I'm gonna go ahead and spoil that one for you, buddy, you're yeah. getting nothing You're getting nothing about what Bran was doing
1: yeah, that's disappointing because it, a lot of Bran's relevance dies with this episode. You would have expected him to either play a greater role or to have some ongoing connection to a purpose after this, but
0: I don't see it. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Bran could say that now. Now it's humanity has to wipe out Cersei. I don't know. Who, who, who knows? <laughs> uh, the Night King commands the Whites to take a human to make a human bridge over the trenches. He does it with some sort of weird hand gesture. Mm-hmm. The Night King's on Viserion. He's looking badass. Davos Especially and Arya. demonic. Yeah, Davos and Arya are watching, piecing together what's happening. Davos figures, seems to figure it out first, and he commands them to start fighting again. Thank you, Davos. As the whites <laughs> pour over the trenches. And is still barking out orders in uh, in the Winterfell uh, courtyard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jamie and Brienne go to the top of the wall. Jon looks up. He sees the Night King. Night King sees He takes off toward her. Jon takes off with Rhaegal for the Night King. Now we're now we're dealing we're getting it, Spencer. We're, we're getting some dragon battles. We're back to
1: plan. Yes, kind of.
0: We're not we're not where the plan should have been. We're fighting
1: another dragon in the friggin' open air, which is not ideal, but best we can do. We've committed. We're going. We're doing it now.
0: You're giving a lot more credence to the plan than I would. have. I don't think they really had much of a plan. All they had was, well, we'll put Bran out here, and maybe the Night King at some point will show up, and we'll try to kill him. I mean if they expected the Night King to go right to him immediately before his army inflicted damage upon Winterfell, then they're, they're nuts, obviously. <laughs> and so all they, they... I mean, I guess it's going to plan. I mean, the plan is to just do everything we can to lure the Night King out, which here's the Night King. So that's working. But I got more excited about the fact that we're going to see some dragon battles in the sky.
1: And it Woo! was gorgeous. It was seeing those shots of them above the clouds going through the heavens, trying to find the Night King, just disappearing rapidly before them, was just, again... There are so many beautifully filmed shots this episode.
0: Yeah, so the Whites are pouring over the wall. Jamie seems to have taken some level of a de facto commander position. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think this is any disrespect to Brienne on his part, but he is now sort of telling folks, go here, go there, come on, let's keep fighting. And I think it's a testament to just what a a commander and warrior he is, that he's able to slide into that with this group of people who have every reason in the world to hate him. But they can see what, I mean, he's earning their respect. They, okay. He's fighting alongside them. He's saving their lives. He's—they're sa- saving his. He's developing a connection, and I do think this is a little bit of a controversial opinion, but I'm gonna—I'm gonna throw it out there for you, Spencer. You pick it up or you put it back down. Mm. I think that he's actually going to fight on the side of Danny against Cersei.
1: I think so too, but I think he'll be the one that tries to at least negotiate first. I agree that he is now fully committed to Danny's side. I don't see him going back to supporting Cersei. But I think he will, Tyrion style, still try to broker a resolution first, if Danny even allows that to happen.
0: Uh, a lot of folks are saying that they think he's just going to tell Danny, hey, look, I-, I gave you what I told you I was going to give you. I fought on the side of the living. This isn't my war. I'm not going to go try to kill my sister. So uh, I, I don't think he's going to do that, but a significant amount of fandom does.
1: After all he has suffered and endured in this moment, after how much he rose to the occasion and served as the general and commander we always knew that he was capable of being in these moments, how much he was just fighting back to back against the walls of Winterfell as the undead just swarmed over the army, I can't see this moment so fast, so quickly disappearing from his consciousness.
0: Yeah, well, he could, you know, he, I mean, just to argue the other side, I mean, he could separate it. I mean, he, he said he was coming to fight for the living. He never said anything about trying to defeat the Lannisters.
1: Maybe, but I think when when Bronn shows up and says, hey, Cersei sends her regards, or Cersei sent me to kill you, assuming he's not actually going to play it out, I, how many bridges is that going to burn, assuming even are still left?
0: I think Braun kills Tyrion, Jaime kills Braun, Jaime uses that as motivation to march with Danny down to King's Landing.
1: Very possible. hope it doesn't play out that way. <laughs>
0: Gendry's also on the walls, hacking away at the whites with his badass, um, questionably forged, uh, which we we tried to get into on a a, a now long lost doing it a third time episode. Uh, Yeah, we 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 recorded uh, our our coverage, our full coverage of season eight, episode two, twice. Both times, my computer crapped out. I have bought a new computer, Mm -hmm. Um, but in that we won't get into it. I'm just going to do a quick hit, Spencer, and we'll move on. You just basically said you can't really forge. Uh, Dragon glass, like he can steal, so it's a little unrealistic that uh, that uh, Gendry was just able to make these axes or whatever. But he has one of them. He's up there. He's fighting Grey Worm and Tormund also. So you got the, like I said, you got Westerosi first team, uh, all all Westeros mm-hmm. up there on the wall. Jamie and Brienne are fighting together, which gives me the warm and fuzzies. <laughs> but Sam is up there too. Sam, God, Sam the Slayer, and it just showing no fear. At one point, he's getting murked Jorah saves him there are wooden blockades inside the courtyard that seem to be laced with dragon glass yeah and those seem to be particularly effective they are they're not they're not allowing the bear island folks to get run over by the incoming you know by the incoming dead
1: however one thing does rapidly show up which disrupts some of those plans and the position of the bear islanders
0: <laughs> oh yeah yeah that happens but before then sandor is hiding Mm-hmm. Uh, and breathing hard and Arya enters one side of the wall and starts kicking a lot oh, of ass yeah. <laughs> and Arya's theme plays this is back from season one now it's a little hyped up it's faster there's some drums in it but it's distinctly Arya's theme and she she's wielding that weird weapon that spear that seems to come apart that she can kind of use two sides of it uh, very well mm-hmm. um, and Beric is yelling for uh, Clagane to join the fight to no avail uh, then, mm-hmm. and then, as Spencer wanted to get into, a giant bust in and swats away little Liana. And Arya is still killing it, but there's just too many. And she gets knocked down. Beric again is yelling for Clegane and Sandor yells, we're fighting death. You can't beat death. And at this point, Arya tumbles over a group of whites, mm-hmm. uh, fights some more, and then gets knocked onto a roof that the uh, Beric and the hound have a line of sight of and beric shout out to him perfect line here he just looks at sandor points at Arya, and says tell her that tell her you can't beat death and that works that sparks it in Clegane, and he takes off to go help Arya.
1: i was expecting you to love that scene in particular given how much you've enjoyed their
0: relationship and i i I, the way he snaps you look i'm going to tell you right now Sandor Clegane loves Arya Stark. Yeah. And, and not in a romantic way or anything inappropriate. He just genuinely loves her as a person. And in that moment, he didn't even hesitate to overcome the one thing he's most scared of in the world, which is fire, to go fight undead soldiers, probably to certain death, just to try to help her in that moment. I loved it.
1: I, I love, too, the barracks with them and that he so quickly reads the characters and reads the scenes to go, need to get Sandor inspired. Arya, right there. Look there. We've seen before that he has a really good read on characters and really good supporting kind of character. And I like it that he so quickly solved that problem and then goes with Clagane to be there with him while it happens.
0: Yeah, and it's good thing they did. Good thing they did. Uh, our MVP of the episode, who needed that assist, uh, Liana is hurt from the dragon swipe, but she gets up with her dragon glass axe yells and charges the giant i'm not quite sure what she thinks she's going to accomplish here but he grabs her very weird behavior here from a white uh you could quibble with this but i do think it is a nice little ending to liana mormont's character he squeezes her lifts her up he's trying i guess he's looking at her and she he's cracking her ribs which by the way was a really gross sound yeah and
1: was he looking to chew on her i mean it seemed like his mouth was open and he was moving her in that direction
0: (laughs) Which would I guess that could be consistent because yeah. the whites do chew on yeah, he grabs her, he squeezes her, he he cracks her ribs and she can barely get a breath in but she does pick that that axe up and stab the stabs the giant through the eye they both fall down dead.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: an, an exit to a character that, as we saw in the uh, post script of the episode, they really had originally only intended to be a one scene wonder, but the actress just did so damn well with the role, uh, Little Miss Ramsey, I believe her name is, that she. T- Became a wonderful addition to the show. The, the character in the books literally just has a letter and is entirely off scene otherwise. But she's been a, gr- a great deal of fun for what they've uh, added with her, uh, with her role.
0: Yeah, Bella Ramsey, I believe, is the actress. That's it. That's it. Um, and it's it, funny story from her. She said that when she first got the script, and it, she was a one-scene character, she thought that they were supposed to hate her. So she acted that scene, the first scene you see her in, trying to be obnoxious. Mm-hmm. and get you, get you to hate her. And somehow it just flipped. And everybody there was like, no, no, we don't hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure the audience not gonna either. And then they just kept writing parts for it. I,
1: mean, I, I, get, why, I get how she would think that, that was what she was conveying. But the main thing I got out of that scene was just fiery pride. And it's been one of her maiden bothering virtues ever since. And it's with that that she died in epic fashion.
0: Agreed. John and Danny are flying around, still looking for the Night King. And they find him. Viserion comes in from below and fires blue flame at Drogon. I thought it was interesting that he's targeting Drogon, not Rhaegal.
1: That is interesting. He goes after Danny for a while. I mean, he's straight blowing fire for like twenty seconds. And I'm just on the edge of my seat, going, "Are they going to kill Danny now? Are they going to kill Danny now?" It's right on her. Her cloak's literally on fire.
0: You know what this reminded me of? Mm. Uh, when we would play Halo, <laughs> and uh, you know, like you and you and Doug, I think were the best but we always had teams, right? Yeah. And so there'd be situations where like I would be with Doug and you would come out and you would lay the bullets on Doug for about like the good 10 seconds as he tried to get away from you. Mm-hmm. And I was just standing next to you and you just weren't touching me. <laughs> it, it was you, a you knew who the threat of, was. <laughs> it
1: was a conscious thought of, okay, let's kill the main predator with main threat in this scene. I'll get back to you in some later moment. You're no threat whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Which, Clearly not King's thoughts here. Which, if that was the Night King's thoughts, he was sorely mistaken, which we will see. Ooh. Arya's in the library, and I love this scene. I think this scene creates a consistency in the episode that is very important at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out a few things. Please. It's They are clearly taking pains to show how quick and silent Arya can be. There has been emphasis in her training from uh you know the the first sword of bravos to when she's actually in bravos to some of the stuff she's doing on her own she takes great pains in learning how to be quick and silent i think that the so there's some sort of line uh that the first sort of bravos tells her about being like quick and silent as a cat or something like that
1: also the first sword doesn't run but you know details
0: yeah i mean she she is v- so silent here, she's actually fooling the whites. I mean, she's mm-hmm. able to get around them, hide from them. And it's not until a drop of blood from her forehead drops maybe a foot onto the ground Which gives you a that they, they hear.
1: Damn quiet she's being that the drop of blood hitting the ground is louder than her than she, than her or her breathing.
0: Yeah. Like that tells you what you need to know about Arya's ability to sneak past people mm-hmm. and to, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, sneak past people and go unhurt. Well, anyway, that single drop of blood does fall. A white looks down. She's able to get out from under there. She throws a book as a bit of a diversion. She eventually turns the corner and sees a white and drives a knife right through its throat, yet again showing how fast her reflexes are. So we're establishing two things very clearly in this scene. One is that she is quiet as shit. Mm -hmm. She can get around and actually fool white's. She can mm-hmm. she can get past whites without them hearing her. Important for later. You can also, try to
1: foreshadow this as much as you want. I'm still going to complain about that scene when we get to it.
0: <laughs> you can if you want to, but they they are the show is doing things to establish her I skill set. I get it. Um, and I, there's a couple things here. I, I think I might be able to convince you. But um, the but she that the, the very very quick reflexes, and then she lays the white down very quickly. Uh, but as she's trying to get out of the, the the room, kind of into a side hallway, a white breaks through the door and chases her down the hallway. And this is the scene that we got in the trailer. Very first scene in the trailer where Arya is running through the halls of Winterfell and the whites are following her.
1: Mm-hmm. Which we in no way expected it was going to play out like this. We didn't think it was the halls of Winterfell. We thought it was the catacombs.
0: Yeah, and I thought it would be something more than just whites chasing her to scare her. But no, I mean, I think she was just trying to get away from um it,
1: It's a very interesting change of pace in the episode of where the episode goes through a lot of different kinds of tension moments of where it allows us to build and lessen our tension over time, which keeps us on edge, but not tired. And so it's a very well-structured out episode in that way, where the director said before that if you just show people fi- fighting nonstop, it's going to be boring real quick. And so he threads in these very different kind of emotional and. Um, style of tension scenes throughout to give us a chance to break and build back up and focus in on a new moment without just leaving us caught up in just a bland mass of sameness so i like this scene it's a good change of pace and allows us to have the attention in battle moments later by giving us this kind of tension it's an odd thing odd thing to call it a break but a break from the combat to give us a different kind of tension for a while
0: Right, and it continues because we cut back to the crypt, and they can hear fighting. And this is a little different because the fighting is much closer to the crypt, and they can hear people begging to come inside and inside. Sansa, wa- Sansa walks out. She looks at the door. She's clearly the leader here, but she doesn't know what to do. This is not. She's not the Sansa of the Battle of Blackwater, where she's going to sing hymns to try to comfort people. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, she's looking the truth in the face, and that is we're probably fucked, guys.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cut to the Hound and Barrack walking through the halls of Winterfell. Arya, with a white attacking her, bursts through a door. Barric, hell of a, hell of an arm on Barric. I mean, he's, I got... a freaking uh, longsword. Yeah, man. He's, uh, he's got to be at least a, a middle reliever. Uh, he throws that longsword uh, that's lighting, hits the white, freeing Arya. Barric and the Hound begin a series of pushing Arya down the hall, which I find pretty funny. So Arya <laughs> keeps wanting to fight, and they keep going. Go, uh, nope, nope, go. Nope, no nope. no It's too dangerous. Uh, Beric takes multiple stabs. And just uh, keeps going. To- yeah, tells him to run, and he gets stabbed more. He then eventually blocks the door in a very Christ-like manner, which you pointed out, yeah. and uh, which you pointed out in our reaction pod. I think that's especially adept because he has come back to life from oh, death. Yeah. Right? You know, so you can see how that all ties in. The hound, Arya, and a beat-up Beric fall into a separate door, uh, and then uh, a side door, and then they, they bar the door. They close. Mm-hmm. Barric dies before he can even get out a final word, and then the big reveal your girl your mvp melisandra is in the room she says the lord brought him back for a purpose now that purpose is served i know you and i know you you said we meet again and here we are at the end of the world aria at this point remembering really you know she's engaged in this conversation she said you said i'd shut many eyes forever you were right about that too brown eyes green eyes and blue eyes
1: and Arya starts at that one,
0: of where suddenly
1: he, one of the only prophecies the show itself has ever not only introduced,
0: but invented itself, has come to the forefront. She seems to get what Mel is driving at here. And I think now her purpose is different. Now she's not Arya, I'm defending the walls of Winterfell. She's Arya, I have something to do here. Mm-hmm. I've got to close the blue eyes. Which we... So they... Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
1: I, I We figure we know... What, I, at this point, I know what she means, but I didn't really get that she would be going straight after the Night King here.
0: Me neither. Me neither, but I... Uh, anyway, well, we're gonna. I can. I can tell we're gonna argue about it later. But oh, yeah. she. She. Well, Jesus, settle down. <laughs> do you have to re? Do have to replay your fucking reaction pod when you were cheerleading it with me? I don't want to hear you going on. I'm, all I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. They hear the dead beating and screeching at the door. Potential line of the episode, sir. Oh, very much so. Mel looks down at Arya. And what do we say to the god of death, Arya? Not today. Not today. And Arya walks off, presumably leaving from a different door across the other side of the room.
1: Mm-hmm. Another great callback line to season one.
0: In the Godswood, Theon can hear the whites. Uh, he shouts that they're coming. Uh, the Night King is headed to the Godswood, fires off flame at Winterfell. I thought he would do more of this, but it seemed like he just hit it once because he was just trying to get in there. John and Rhaegal follow, and Rhaegal and Viserion get into a battle. Now, this is it's hard to tell what's going on. It's awesome. it's not that it's too dark that I can't see anything. I just, it's hard to tell who is who and who's actually getting the better of who, just because it's kind of funky seeing two dragons fight. Now I've watched it multiple times. Here has, here's how I'm going to score it. Sure. All right. Round one goes to Rhaegar. No point. He gets him. He gets him when Viserion was not, it's a three round fight Mm -hmm. when Viserion was not expecting it. Round two goes to Viserion because Viserion quickly is able to get back on top of Rhaegar. And a few times he takes a bite at Jon. Mm-hmm. Round three, at some point, Rhaegal gets his mouth around Viserion's throat and just holds tight. Oh, yeah. And rips off part of his face, too, in the process. Or is that when Drogon suddenly jumps into the scene? Oh, no. Drogon only does one thing in this scene. Drogon jumps in to just grab the Night King and toss him off because he gotcha. has that, that spear. The, the, so I, I count this two to one on the cards for Rhaegal.
1: Definitely. I mean, in terms of the injuries that result, it seems like Rhaegal gets his belly cut up pretty bad in the process of this fight. But he gets him around the throat. He rips off what seems like half his face and part of his skull. He gets the initial hits into the surprise, and he gets the both dragon and night king pinned in a position for Drogon to swoop in and get the night king finally where they want him.
0: They think. They think. Um, so yeah, the night king is about to throw one of those little those little uh, javelins. Now I'm going to tell you this, and this is consistent among the episodes. Drogon is no fucking dummy. Drogon saw that spear, that ice spear, one time. Mm-hmm. And he has taken every step to avoid it since. <laughs> he is, he, he, he saw it. He, he, he saw it immediately, just snatches him and throws him off, the, off of Viserion onto the ground. Who
1: just emotionlessly and unmoving falls to the ground and then just stands and stares and waits. And uh, Danny
0: and Drogon, Arya gets her answer. Danny. Hits the Dracare's fire button on her on her Mercedes <laughs> dragon, and it flies down. All the dragon fire flies down on the Night King. The music is building. John is watching. John is watching. He's close. They because because at that it, yeah side to this, uh, Rhaegar fell. Uh, he was trying to land, and he kind of ate it. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks assumed that Rhaegar was dead there. No, I did no. not. I thought he just was hurt, and he just kind of stumbled.
1: He was just going too quick. Basically, he gotten hurt. He was trying to get away from the scene. He just finished off the battle. He he, he 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 stuck the landing too quick.
0: We've seen a dragon die upon falling and that you know Viserion just was a bundle of flesh. Yeah. Rhaegal Rha- 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 Rha was was very much still trying to land. He just because he's tripped. Uh John flew away. So John is now on foot, which is where I wanted John all along. Yeah. So he's there on foot. He's got long claw. He's looking at this. Fire goes down onto the Night King. Danny's theme plays. We think, oh man, Danny me I got him. We look the Dragonfire did nothing to the Night King and he actually smirks at her. He has the audacity to smirk, which is great. <laughs> Yeah, but this is, this is We're starting to see a theme Overconfidence Yeah, sure um, and, and the overconfidence is on display even more When Jon starts to chase the Night King uh, On foot, he wants to engage him in single combat And the Night King finally thinks To raise the dead that have been killed during this battle I don't know why he didn't do this until now but he's finally like, oh yeah, I guess I'll just do this again. He may not be able to do it on Dragonback. It may be a, some, something that he
1: actually needs, needs to either be closer to the scene, or just needs to be able to concentrate to do it. Because well w-
0: w- wouldn't he have just done it when he first? I mean, like there, there was there was it, chances for him there, to do this what, if he wanted to. There
1: is, but he's in no rush, as you said. This is his hour. He is utterly confident in circumstances, and it's almost like he—we've seen this before. He wanted the heroes to see themselves fail. He's just standing there, waiting for Danny, smirking at her because he wants to see her hope die in her eyes. So That's what I'm saying he's overconfident. Sure, way overconfident. I, I'm invested in that. Fully agree. Uh,
0: but it, before Danny, before th- this engagement happens with John and the Night King raises the dead, I did miss one little part here. Drogon yet again shows that he wants no part of the ice bolt. Uh, the Night King throws the eyeball. Ice King, He's he gone barrel, before it even he, thrown. <laughs> he barrel rolls out of it. That thing never stood a chance. But anyway, now we're left with the Night King has raised all of these bodies that are around that John. Distinctly oh, oh,
1: but this is in keeping with the fact that seemingly the Obsidian or Valerian still disrupts his magic. It is distinctly the dead that were fighting him. It is distinctly Danny's army's dead.
0: Yes. Um so they are they're being lifted up and John is now surrounded by a hell of a lot of whites. It doesn't look good for him. But Danny has come back after the barrel roll to get away from the bolt and torches a lot of the whites that are around John. Mm-hmm. John so, looks up at Danny, and I think he's actually asking for her approval here. What, he says, Bren! What
1: were you thinking during John's charge, by the way? Of when, before the, while the Night King's raising this up, John just looks at it and John does what John does. John goes full suicidal charge straight at the Night King. He just doesn't make it.
0: I, I thought it would have been an interesting moment for John to die.
1: I was thinking, he, well, again, we went into this episode assuming everyone was going to die. And so there were many moments of where I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. Because I thought everyone was going to go out before this was over.
0: Yeah, I think it would be a very interesting moment for John to, on his way, get an ice bolt through the chest.
1: Yeah. Or just what? straight up be surrounded by the undead and die standing 10 feet away from the Night King.
0: Yeah, but it does make sense that Danny would come back. I can't imagine him oh, would yeah. just leave that situation. Uh, And to the question that we pondered in the now lost episode for season eight, episode two, Danny does not have divided loyalties during this battle. Uh, he is very much still very loyal to John, despite this conversation that they had about John's heritage. So uh, she comes back. She saves him. Now, John looks up at Danny, says, Bran. She says, go, go. Now, look, Spencer, uh, you've watched you've watched some basketball in your life. Yes, yes, yes. Um, So there's a thing that we talk about in basketball. We talk about um, court vision and situational awareness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is when you can you see the court? Can you see all the pieces moving on situational awareness? Okay, this happens. How do you respond? This is what we're looking for in athletes. Love Danny. I would follow Danny into battle. Terrible court vision, terrible situation awareness, because she just sits on Drogon and lets these damn whites just swarm on top of Drogon. She should have got the hell out of there as soon as she told J- uh, Jon to run. She should have gone herself, too. <laughs> yeah. Crazy move from her. and But yeah. it does set up a scene that I love as a book reader. Mm-hmm. Because this reminds me of the dragging of the storm, the the, the um, storming of the dragons. Storming of the dragons. Thinking pit. Exactly. the same thing. This is. Yeah. You want to know how dragons die? To just you know peasants swarming over them. This. This. This is how. Enough of them get on top, and it looked like Drogon was about to eat it. And Drogon, look, man, I don't blame him. Drogon knows, like, I'm no good to you dead. So mm-hmm. sorry, mom. I got to get away for about five minutes. Like, I'll be make- back. I will be back. But right yeah. now, gotta live. So he he's shaking and danny falls off and he's able to get airborne and as soon as he gets airborne you you figure out he's going to live because he's able to once he gets airborne he can really start moving and he's knocking a lot of those whites off of him Uh, white comes up to danny and you see a sword come out from behind her a very long one uh probably a claw on it um (laughs) no it's not john but it is jorah he's back Mm -hmm. and he cuts off the head of a white and he pulls danny to a very interesting location so Looking at the number of whites that were there, you would think that between Jorah and Danny they would just be dead. But Jorah pulls her up to where their backs are against fire. Mm-hmm. So now they're, they're they've they've limited the the area that they have to monitor of whites coming after them, which I thought was a smart move by Jorah.
1: It, it's also a situation too where it seems like the main whites that are going after them are the just now resurrected dead of her own army. The bulk of the of the Night King's original force is now within the fire, within the walls, going up against the walls, or inside the castle already. So there's probably not as many people out here anyway to come after them
0: yeah anyway we, we had a few other things happen in there i mean they, they're bouncing around a lot i'm trying to hit like the real the big parts but i will i will talk about some of the other stuff but i'll just breeze through them so they do at some point cut back to the courtyard and jamie torman gray worm sam and Brienne are hacking away uh but the folks got raised because the night king when he did that it, it raised everybody in Winterfell, not just the folks who were right there next to him and then you see some folks get raised that we didn't want to see Crazy. Ed, oh, yeah. Liana, yeah. the head of the Dothraki,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, he got raised. Then we cut down to the crypts, and the dead start coming back to life. I called this one. You did. They start running around, killing people, and it really doesn't look like anybody's fighting them, which I think is weird. Like, nobody's doing anything. Yes. They're just you dying. Got,
1: they kind of got numbers on really, and they're just dogpile them. But it's a human response to, someone is dying or be or killing over there, I go opposite direction. <laughs>
0: I would at least take a swing or two. Like, I mean, mean, they don't have any weapons. Yeah, All they have is their teeth. I would just to the head.
1: Anyone who was emotionally willing to make a swing was outside the crypts at this
2: time.
0: Yeah. The Night King and the White Walkers are walking out of the castle toward the God's Woods. So this has worked in theory. The Night King is going after Bran. Finally. Uh, at the Godswood, SEAL Team Reek is just killing a bunch of folks. I mean, doing I don't know good. what the hell got, I don't know what the hell got into Theon, but he's one of the best fighters they have now.
1: We knew, we always knew he was an archer. He always been bragging about he was an archer since season one, and now we get to see him just doing straight archery again. John is running through the courtyard. He's presumably
0: trying to get to the Godswood.
1: And this is another wonderful wonder kind of scene of where it's a long track shot of just John walking through carnage, seeing his friends on the verge of death around him.
0: Yeah, I think that what you had is you have like the, the, the main wing of Winterfell includes the library, includes all of the bedrooms, the castles, everything. And you have the courtyard and then opposite of the courtyard, you can get to the godswood. Mm-hmm. And so John is over here in the sort of main part of, of Winterfell and he is now running to try to get through the courtyard to get into the godswood. Now you, this is consistent because you see a shot where when the the Night King is actually walking to the Godswood, he's he's leaving the courtyard. So he when he but when he walks through the courtyard, fucking undead Viserion drops in. Oh God, and that's terrifying. My uh, my scoring of the in air heavyweight fight between Viserion and Rhaegal gets validated here because Rhaegal is breathing fire out of his mouth and both sides of his neck. Uh, it, Viserion is. Yeah, that's what I mean, Viserion. Yeah.
1: But yeah, he is trashed. He is a even more of a corpse of a dragon, and he's mostly just displaying random rage as he's just incinerating everything that moves.
0: Yeah, we we see Brienne and Jamie, and they're just backed in a corner and literally just pushing whites off of them. Yeah. Uh, at some point, they're going to get tired here, but man, shout out to them, heroic and, effort, and
1: Pod. Pod's right there with them, still fighting on too.
0: Yeah, Pod's still going.
1: And like two huh? random guys, credit to random guys that are still surviving this episode too. The no-name red shirts are holding on.
0: Yeah, a couple of them anyway. Uh, Jora has Danny next to that fire I talked about, and the whites are coming in in a few directions. Danny, shout out to her. Picks, picks up a, a sword and yeah. starts swinging. You so, don't have to tell her to stick stick 'em with the pointy end. Danny grabs a sword and she, for someone who has absolutely no training in sword fighting, does okay. She holds. She does okay, Sheldrum.
1: Yeah, she successfully spears a couple. She doesn't really, you know, fight off that many or whatever else since Jorah doing the bulk of the fighting, but she's not going down or serving as a damsel in distress in this moment whatsoever.
0: No, she is. And, you know, that that probably only, not that he needed it, but it probably gave Jorah more fuel because she's going to do everything she can. She's she's not a fighter, like, hand-to-hand, but she's picked up a sword. She's ready to go. Let's do this. Back in the crypt, Sansa and Tyrion are hiding uh sansa is having trouble getting her breath which you know you're a sansa fan so that probably affected you emotionally i thought it was time for her to get her come up and
1: <laughs> what did you think this is this an interesting scene because i've heard so many different interpretations of how people reacted when they saw this when they pull their blades and they're staring at the blades looking at each other what did you think they were about to do
0: uh make a run for it i didn't think they were going to go attack I, both Bridget and
1: I turned to each other and said at the same moment, are they about to kill themselves? Because, oh, that, that didn't even cross my mind. And again, I've got several people I've talked to where they said, oh yeah, that was my first thought they're about to kill themselves. And had other people said, no, that never even crossed my mind. So it's no, uh-uh.
0: My decision point for me was, are they going to use those knives to try to exit just on their own, or are they actually going to go out and start fighting these these reanimated Starks?
1: Uh, seemingly just exit on their own was the, was the decision they made. Because they, 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 next we see of him, they've just kind of clustered together around another large group of survivors, which have seemingly are under the leadership, or at least who's standing in front is Ferris.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he doesn't even make him any, But it's interesting, though. Did you notice the little nod that Varys gives him? Yeah, I did notice that. Varys goes, and I, I took that to mean, I, "Old friend, I know you're not you're not going to stay here and help me. I, I know, go. Hmm. Yeah, like I got it." Um, and I, I think that Tyrion got that message, and they they took off. Not that they got anywhere, but they did take <laughs> off. Yeah, where are they going to go?
1: The doors the doors barred, and they're caught in crypts. <laughs>
0: We also need to talk about the fact that before Sansa and Tyrion went out of hiding, Tyrion grabbed Sansa's hand and kissed it. Uh, Again, I don't get too caught up in, oh, are they going to... Bump uglies. Is this a sexual mm-hmm. thing? I, I I really like it when two characters have a genuine love and affection for each other and display it, regardless of romantic involvement. Fair and that's same. what we got here. And I just really love that moment of tenderness between the two of them.
1: I do. The two of them work really well together. We haven't seen them in a lot of scenes before this season again. And but their scenes together have been the delight, particularly over the course of this episode. Um. While this is going on, there's just so many great moments as you see John just struggling through the courtyard, fight, fighting people off. Of where all the characters are ending up. You talked about Brian. Yeah, and- I don't.
0: Uh, so I don't know how you want to do this, but I got all of these in a bulleted list. So Please go down. I, I don't want to steal your thunder. If you got a point to make, great. But I, I do have kind of like the rundown of what's going on. Give me the list. Okay, and feel free to stop me anytime. So Jorah's doing all he can to save. Well, we, you no. Know, first, we'll start with John. He's in the courtyard. He's struggling. Viserion is still like hitting fire everywhere, but it's actually literally going everywhere. He seems Viserion seems completely out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, I guess I should expect that from an undead dragon. He seems, seems like he's killing, doing all he. <laughs> he seems but, like
1: he's killing more, almost more undead than he's killing our, uh, uh, fighters in Danny and John's army at this point. He's just
0: pissed. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's out of control. Jorah's doing all he can to save Danny, Danny, but he does get stabbed a couple times. Yeah. Uh, Danny's holding her own, but you do get the sense it's just a matter of time now. Now, during the last sequence with John, and this sequence with Jorah and Danny, you start to get uh, the beginning of a new great score. by oh, This is
1: par- this is wonderful. This score that wraps up this last like ten minutes of the episode.
0: This is a brand new piece for this episode, and it—I it, it, don't think it's ten minutes, but it's—it's it's probably four or five sure. of the song. Uh, i think it plays in full so if you go and you, you you grab the the song off youtube you'll you'll see they played this song completely in feel in full i love it i thought it was perf- perfect and it it had certain beats with certain parts of the episode that i thought was masterfully planned really loved it shout out to raymond wally mm-hmm. he really killed it Tyrion and sansa um creep by that's when he sees Varys. Varys gives him a knowing look john is trying to get loose to go to the god's wood but viserion is still blocking the way cut to the god's wood theon is hacking away Bran is still warging. What the fuck, Bran? What are you doing? The Night King then walks in with his White Walkers. Cut to Jorah, who's now on his knees. He gets hit in the throat, but still gets back up. Mm-hmm. Keeps going. Cut to the courtyard. Jamie Pod, and Bran are pushed completely against a wall. Tormin, my man! Not against a wall. On top of a pile of his own dead. Hacking away. <laughs> with no with, problems. With Gendry like half
1: buried alongside him. and Is Sam at the bottom of their pile? Is that where he is?
0: Yeah, he is. It's the bottom of the pile. I think he's pretending to be dead. Uh, and at some point, he starts crying. And I saw a few people on Twitter like giving him shit for that. It's like, I think Sam... Bullshit.
1: Sam, when his was charging through the courtyard, Sam is literally on the ground. He's not like he's hiding at first. He's literally covered with other dead that he's still stabbing with his blades as they're still coming at him. Sam fought on hard throughout all of this.
0: Hell yeah, he did. Hell yeah, he did. No criticism to Sam. Um, then we cut to Theon. He's still fighting. Uh, he's doing a damn good job too. Uh, he is. He's, he's leaving. He's leaving it all on the court.
1: He's all that's left at this point. I mean, his group of Ironborn and the Karstarks
0: fought damn
1: hard in this Godswood against overwhelming numbers. But at this point, Theon's all that's left.
0: Theon sees the Whites stop and part, and the Night King <sighs> walks up and starts staring at him. Bran then issues presidential pardon, four hundred and eighty-three of episode eight or uh, season eight and says Theon you're a good man thank you mm-hmm. Theon looks down looks up at the Night King and he knows he's got to take a shot
1: he tries his Lyanna Mormont routine um don't, goes at him
0: don't work this time though runs at him with a spear the Night King pushes the spear aside, breaks it flips it and stabs it into Theon's chest Theon is my dude that's where I come down after eight seasons of this show mm-hmm. I ride or die with Theon I, he has is, he is walked up that ladder of Redemption, Spencer. I now pulled him in the pantheon of favorite characters.
1: I really do enjoy his arc. I mean, it's one of the arcs where the show has been content to actually play it out in its completeness, both from the books and going beyond what the books have showed us so far. And it's lovely. It's just such a magnificent arc that he goes, of course in the show. and he ends at home and he has just a very it's a wonderful exit to the character to find to have it go out like this.
0: The Night King then looks at Bran and starts walking toward him as Theon dies. There's no doubt about the fact that Theon dies there. They make yeah. that very clear. Jon is still trying to get past Viseria. Uh He's now behind some weird little, like, pylon, and he's ducking from the flames. He's jumping up every once in a while, seeing Viseria, and jumping back down. Danny at this point is having to hold Jorah up, and Jorah takes two more stabs that really were going for Danny. He literally just put his body in front of the knife. Mm-hmm. And somehow stands up again. It keeps and fighting. Sheer adrenaline. Danny touches his arm in a tender moment because she knows her friend is is on his last legs. Mm-hmm. The Night King then continues to walk toward Bran. Cut back to John. Now, I, with the help of the internet, do believe I know what happened here. I'm going to tell you what I saw, and you're going to tell me what you think. John is down back to that pylon and he looks up and from his left to right his eyes follow something go back and watch it he stops the sort of weird hard breathing he looks up he looks left to right cut immediately to the night king still walking toward bran bran looks away
1: are you suggesting that he's intentionally distracting the dragon
0: yes interesting king, I, I, i'll have yeah.
1: to go back and notice that because if so that validates this scene the way i didn't expect
0: a couple pieces of evidence one is the, the eyes how he goes left to right and he stops he actually focuses which he's not doing when he's just worried about viserion breathing fire he just and it's very brief i'm telling you it's it's really subtle um but i do think it's there the night king is still walking toward Bran, and brand does an interesting thing i think it's a little bit of foreshadowing they give us brand looks into the eyes of the night king and they have they, they lock eyes and then brand looks down at his chest and then looks back up at his eyes and the night king cocks his head like what are you doing mm-hmm. why did you look at my chest John then stands up, looks at Viserion, and screams, "Go, go, go!" Is that what he's screaming?
1: It, yeah. it was not subtitled. It was—I I watched it on subtitles again, and it was just—I think it just said yelling.
0: Listen to it. Okay. He's—he's he's saying go. All right. Like that—that that, like so the 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 look but the, from left to right on the screen, you can quibble with that. You can say I'm reading something into it. I've listened to this now. I don't know how many times he says go now I don't know if he's if the implication there is he's looking at Viserion and daring him to, to, to breathe come, fire come on at me, yeah but my theory a lot of people's theory is he sees Arya he needs to get Viserion to, to look at something else to distract so that Arya can get to the god's wood and he jumps up stands there says go 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 that'd be a
1: very in Jon keeping thing to do I, I accept this theory and I embrace it I'm gonna go rewatch and confirm that I agree with it
0: uh the Night King goes to kill Bran. Uh, he picks up the sword very slowly. beautifully. savoring the moment. Music. And then ah! The Lucha Libre! Arya is back. She jumps in from the top rope and running so fast that the hair
1: on the and the on the heads of the uh, White Walkers that are nearby actually buffets from the wind of her
0: going past. Well again, I mean I know you're going to you can you can dislike this if you want, but the show at least I, set it up. They I, set up that he Well, just let me get through the explanation sure, and then sure, sure. hear what you thought. He she is running and she has established that she can run in such a way that the whites can't hear her. So she gets and we the whites are not attacking at this moment. And they actually created a line <laughs> that the Night King just walked in, that she could easily follow. We do see one white as or white walker as his hair starts to blow, turn and look. And then you see the jump from Arya. Now, when he he has to hold Arya first by the neck to hold her up, to have control over her body, but he also has to hold the sword hand. So now the Night King, both hands are preoccupied. Arya, gamely, drops the knife, comes in, picks it up with her offhand, stabs a Night King. Oh my God, Arya killed the Night King. Okay, Spencer, go. Uh,
2: Most
1: shocking moment of the episode to me, in an episode that was already full of shocking moments. Because neither of us expected that this arc would finish right here. And neither of us had the slightest fucking clue that Arya would be the one to do it. Now, I'm going to quibble about this on Book Nerd Bitching for a couple reasons, mostly book-related. But, as a scene that played out, it was unexpected and exciting in many ways. Uh, My quibble, I, I really don't, I did not have much in the way of quibbles. I was more curious about how Arya got there. Uh, I mean, I was looking at this saying that really there's no doors in any of the walls that surround uh, the Godswood that we know. The Godswood's fairly large, so it's not like she could have easily made it from one of the side walls or anything else like that. She wasn't coming from an angle above him, so she wasn't hiding in the tree previously. She clearly just ran up. Whether that's realistic or not, as you said, it was foreshadowed to a certain degree that she would have the abilities necessary potentially to do that. Whether she could have gotten through all of those zombies and the White Walkers, whatever else, I suppose if you wanted to, you could give credence to the idea that since all of them are essentially connected to the uh, Night King, they're all as equally focused as he is on this moment. You can almost see that when the White Walker is so focused that he's only kindly distracted vaguely by the wind going past him. So, I have some quibbles about whether it's realistic or not that she could have gotten there, but I think the show gave us enough setup that it's content that it did it. And, as you say, it is surprising and jaw-dropping that it happens like this. And as we see, it plays out exactly as they expected. When the blade goes in, Night King dies and the army in its entirety goes with him, Viserion included, before he can incinerate Jon.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's what happened. I mean, I tend to think kind of what you just said is there's been multiple instances in the show where we have seen that all of the Whites, the entire army, is connected to the Night King and he can move their focus. Mm Mm-hmm. He, can he get wants them an to audience stop. for this moment. He can get them to stop fighting. And he made a ta- couple tactical, well, a lot of tactical errors here, but the, one of the main ones is not having the Whites still battle ready. yeah. And actually having them separate so that he could walk down this little aisle. Why didn't he have them close back up?
1: He's the one that's very fond of pageantry. It seems like that he is so committed to this moment and just wants them to be there to watch it happen that he let his guard down. Now, even when, even him letting his guard down, he still catches Arya in the act. It's just she's faster than he is in this moment.
0: That's You know what that is? That's somebody who's lived on the streets for a while. She lived in the streets of Bravos, She lived in the streets of King's Landing. That is a slick, slick fucking move that actually makes a hell of a lot of sense because the, the Night King could not have caught her and stopped her with one hand. Mm-hmm. He had had to use both hands. It was happening so quick that he had to just turn around and immediately stop her. And there's nothing he could do with her offhand. And she did it so quick that the other White Walkers couldn't act to pull her off.
1: Yeah. Her getting there is the only thing I dispute a little, but it's not that big of an issue to me. The fact that it's Arya that does it, as said, I'm going to offer this on book nerd bitching for a reason. But we'll get there. For right now, let's
0: focus on the episode as its own accomplishment. So... Then Jorah uh, sees the whites fall, and that is his cue that he is allowed to now die. He falls down, he attempts to speak to Danny, he dies. I'm sure he would have said, I love you, or something like that, but I think Danny already knows. The fighters in the courtyard are like, whoo, the biggest exhale of the (laughs) series. They all look around, they're like, okay, well, I guess it worked. And in the crypts, Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think realistically at this point, probably the only thing that was keeping Torment in the air was the fact that the corpses under him were still moving. I fully expect he kind of sank into the pile at that point and probably had to dig his way out.
0: <laughs> Big woman, come get me. <coughs> now look, I, I'm fully committed to a Jamie uh Brienne uh ending here. Mm-hmm. But Brienne has got to have some mad respect for Tormund after this. She's got to be like, look, dude, I'm not going to sleep with you, but holy shit, you're a badass. And you it, maybe did suckle at the teeth of a giant for three months. Yeah, among
1: whatever forces Danny has alive, which probably is not that many. I mean, I'm expecting at this point she's got, what, a couple thousand max made it through this yeah. battle, if that.
0: We'll get to it. Uh, yeah. yeah,
1: But they hold your heads high that you even lived through this.
0: Yeah, in the crypt, Sansa and Tyrion start to piece together what's happened. Uh, there's a look of relief. In the God's Wood, Arya looks at Bran, exhausted. She looks oh, yeah. exhausted, but she gives the faintest hint of a smile. Mm-hmm. And Bran gives it back to her.
1: He does. First, like, actual smile we've seen at a Bran in, like, three
2: seasons.
0: And it's interesting. It's almost as if he sort of kind of thought that was going to happen because he does foreshadow by looking at the Night King and looking at his chest and looking back. And then as soon as Arya does it, he just turns his head forward and is like, yep, there we go. <laughs> Um, Danny is now crying over Jorah's body. You know, we all made fun, myself included, of friendzone zone Jorah. But, you know, there's something to be said for being that loyal to someone. And he was, and he died for her, he died the exact way he would want to die. And Drogon comes back and lays over to presumably, A, protect her, because he probably still has the piece together that they're all dead yet, but also to comfort her.
1: You've said before, and you've defended vehemently this season, the the power and importance and the respect that should be shown for romantic friendship. And whatever feelings that could not be fully shared between the two of them, Danny clearly loved Jora. Not, as I said, not the same way he loved her, potentially, but... There is no doubt to the limit to how much affection she held for him and how much his death hurts her in this moment.
0: Yeah, and she, I think that's a very genuine scene. I think you're going to see in episode four, Danny, be a little fucked up about it. Oh. Um, Sandor, <laughs> Sandor comes out of Winterfell with Mel, and he's just exhausted. He takes a knee. Mm-hmm. As Davos watches her, Davos is ready to do it. Uh, he said, look, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get you. I remember Shireen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mel walks into the snow. Drops her charm. She turns into the old lady that she really is. She falls over and finally is allowed to sleep. End of episode. And such a
1: wonderful, artistically beautiful exit to her character, too, as she just wanders off into what's a pristine wilderness outside the walls, away from the carnage, and just fades. Like I said, just like, like she's effectively she's accomplished everything she came to Westeros to do. She was here to fight the battle of the dawn and it's happened she's ended the long night and now she's done her purpose is over and she fades and fades almost immediately
0: yeah shout out Melisandre you did the worst thing that the show has ever uh, portrayed yeah. uh, but you also did a few things to redeem yourself so I think you you die a little bit behind the curve but not not quite to child burning <laughs> Yeah, she has moved. Up. She's improved
1: since Shell Burning. I'm glad we can agree on that right now.
0: Yeah, she's not back to she's not back to normal, but she's 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 moved up a little bit. End of the episode. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, yeah, you can quibble with it. It was a little too dark. You can't watch it on your laptop. Or man, the battle formation wasn't great. Or how did Arya get there? But it, if you just just stop being a Twitter troll for like ten fucking seconds, mm-hmm. and just let yourself kind of watch it the episode in a sort of childish wonder in a suspend belief and just get immersed in it it's amazing it's an amazing episode so i loved what they did i mean it's always going to be hard at landing this plane but i stand by this episode i have currently got it as my number four favorite episode in the series history i'm going to list them to you number number one uh winds of winter Mm-hmm. Number of two, I've got uh, Watchers on the Wall. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Number
0: three is the episode that we never got to recap due to failing computers is the one we got last episode, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And then I've got this one.
2: Damn.
1: I mean, I, I, here's, uh, here's what I'm going to explain more as we go on. Um, this episode, independent of anything else, like if this was a movie that was released in theaters, it is incredible. It is majestic. It is one of the finest bits of cinematography I've ever seen. There are quibbles, but there's quibbles with anything in all my favorite works, no question. In terms of how well this is structured, in terms of making a massive battle scene with thousands of characters, still a character-driven drama and thriller, with so many beautiful scenes, with so many well-set-out moments, with so much investment in the characters and everything they're going through, I don't know how you can look at this as other than an astounding success. It was an incredible experience. and On rewatches, it still holds up as just artistically well done for so many ways and in so many moments. I cannot say enough to commend this episode as its own independent achievement, as its own work. No doubt, no question. The quibbles I have is where... It Damn, he's beating the
0: desk. He was so serious. folks?
1: Sorry, that's right next to the mic. Uh, you no, know, I like it. I like it. Uh... The only quibbles, main quibbles I have is where this episode fits in to the overarching plots of the show, both what's come before and what remains to come after. And in that regard, I think it has problems, and they're problems that are worth discussing. But before we get there, though this was not a dialogue-heavy episode, there were still some choice quotes for us to discuss.
0: There were. There were some choice quotes for us to discuss, but I am the emperor of this segment. Am
1: you, I not? You, unquestionably, sir. Yeah.
0: I am going to do something that is unheard of in the history of Got Questions podcast, folks. we <sighs> breaking new ground. We are not going to go back and forth with best line of the episode. What? What have you am done, not? sir? I am choosing best line of the episode now. We are not going back and forth because there's no point of it. I don't want to waste your time, Spencer. So you're a busy man. The best line of the episode, season eight, episode three, The Long Night is... And what do we say the god of death not today powerful line powerful line no question good good choice good choice had to be there was not. i mean there's not a lot of lines i mean there were some good lines we could have gone back and forth but really we'd have been wasting our time uh i i'll tell you this i had some folks at rti uh where i work um actually print out pictures of our Ar- memes of aria with not today and put them on their <laughs> on their office door that's how iconic that was for folks when Sh- Arya said not today Arya meant you are not going to destroy humanity today it's not happening on my watch mm-hmm. i'm going out i'm going to be a, i'm going to be a badass you can say that it's weird that she did the hundred yard dash in four seconds or whatever i don't care i think she was resolute and she delivered it's great for the character great for the series great line line of the episode season eight episode three Woo! I'm
1: with you. I think it's a great line and a great callback, and it sets very much what the show has set to be Arya's arc. It's something the show has invented out of whole cloth. It is very much new and different, and probably distinctly different from what the books are where the books are going to go. But they gave us, they reminded us of their foreshadowing this episode. They gave us the motivation, and if you're correct about Jon Snow's reasons for standing up to the dragon and seemingly inviting suicide, I'm behind it in terms of the show giving us enough to hang our hat on that this is how they they played out what Arya was going to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, with that that theory, um, I did not come up with this on my own. Uh, I, I saw this in the in the in the world of uh, Game of Thrones fans, and I believe it now that I've gone back and looked at it. I think he very clearly says go go. I don't that to me is not in dispute. Mm-hmm. Now that being said. This whole thing could be shot to shit in 10 minutes of episode four when you cut to Jon looking at Arya and saying, "How did you do it? That's yeah. amazing! Yeah. I never expected this." Yeah, so it could be shot to shit. We'll see. But I think that's what they were doing. I, I do think that Jon saw her in the courtyard and he stood to Viserion, and that's how Arya was able to get by. I, I really hope that's where they're going with it, anyway, because that would be uh, there's some textual evidence for it uh, in the show, but it's also would be interesting, very consistent. Okay.
1: Two questions i want to go into just briefly or before we go into a few topics i want to rant about or at least discuss i think bookner bitching might work better here given how much of a broken base this is if i just hit a few topics that are really wrapping up the fandom and we can present our a couple of our thoughts on this or i can present my thoughts and you can offer your opinion too Uh, but first a couple plot points to really address just because they're going to set up where we're going uh point number one how many people do danny and Johnny and john really have left at this point (laughs)
0: um i'm gonna say i said this on the reaction pod i'm gonna say that the bulk of the forces are northerners yeah i think she's probably got somewhere between 500 and a thousand and left. Mm-hmm. and i think she's probably got about 1500 uh northerners mm-hmm. and i think that there is going to be a moment in season uh eight episode four where Danny asked the Northerners, will you come with me? Basically, I don't have enough of an army now. Mm-hmm. And I think they resoundingly, and it's probably going to be a pretty touching moment, tell her, yes, yeah. we will go.
1: And, and I think it's there, there are more forces left in the North. We know forces like the Glovers didn't march, and there's probably forces that are substantially in the South that just didn't come because there was not time to come. The North is freaking huge. Uh, so there's probably armed forces in the North you can draw from, too. I think also the survival of Davos suggests and the fact that we still saw people fighting on the walls suggests that a, a larger portion of danny's army than we might think probably survived the bulk of her army got on the walls when the davos sent out the order saying everybody to the walls and the walls distinctly but,
0: but you say the bulk of her army the dothraki that were inside
1: the walls at that point
0: the, yeah, but I'm just saying, I'm just trying to make the point that Dothraki are dead yeah. and Dothraki were holding the retreat. So that goes back to the idea that she's going to have to really rely on Northern. I support. very
1: much agree with that point. I'm just suggesting that there's probably, I was hearing some people say on Twitter or else that, what was she, have like eight people still alive? Oh yeah, no, I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. The, right. wall- the walls of Winterfell never actually fell. They, ber- they, ber- they uh, breached their way into the courtyard. They were laying waste down there. But we saw throughout this episode, including in the end, when they saw all the dead fall, the walls and the towers where the bulk of her forces that made it into Winterfell were were still intact and were still fighting off the, the uh, undead. So there potentially are quite a few more people than we think still around. We just from that, from a certain point on only saw people in the courtyard and only saw our main characters that were there, which was a charnel house in terms of the survival of the characters that were on that at that point. So
0: there's, I agree. I'd like to. Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out a couple things that did survive. A couple things and people that did survive. Yeah. That just that we know from the preview of the next episode. Yeah. Both dragons. Both dragons. And ghost Somehow. Somehow. You
1: were going to say a joke about something ghost did. What was the joke about something ghost did? Oh,
0: <laughs> go back and watch. It's pretty funny. It's like a, it's such a dog moment. So when Melisandra, you know, puts the hand on the Arak and she says the Valyrian spell and then they all go up in flames. When they go up in flames, Ghost, like, does a little, like, jerk. Like, he goes, ooh, shit. <laughs> you see him turn and kind of go, ooh, whoa, what was that? <laughs>
1: I didn't notice that. That's, that's that's cute. That's nice.
0: Yeah, it was pretty funny. All
1: right. couple topics to discuss on Book Nerd Bitch. And the elephant in the room, and what's got particularly the book fandom just utterly in revolt, is that with this episode, the show has completely th- thrown out and abandoned any aspect of the Azor high last hero kind of mythology and prophecies of where it has never been a possibility that Arya was fitting that role. No aspect of the prophecy fits with her. Including the prophecy that the show itself has straight presented on a couple occasions. Particularly back in season 2. Um, this is something that's been built up a long time. It's something that ties directly into the importance by which both John and Danny are there. The importance of John's background. The reason, essentially, that John exists, but the show has essentially now said, at least in its continuity, that all of that was a red heron.
0: Okay, let's do a couple things. Uh, I like this topic. One, I would like to give a two-sentence defense of the showrunner, and then three, if you don't mind, just giving a little bit of like a... A background on Azor Ahai, just so folks sure. know what you're talking about before we, we, we talk about how the show shit all over it. Mm-hmm. So I will say that, in my opinion, the Azor Ahai, uh, you know, ethos and theory and legend that you're going to talk about uh, is... A classic case of Martin asking forty seven thousand questions and providing zero answers. Yeah. And if I was the showrunners, I'd be a little frustrated with that, and it, maybe I would throw it out as well because he he just doesn't give enough answers in the text that we have for them to go on. Anyway, sorry to cut you off. Let's get a primer on Azorah. High.
1: Zora High is the um, term among the faith of the Red God um, for essentially their mythical hero who will fight back the night. The bearer of light bringer, he who will wield the dawn and bring an end to the great other, as they, as, as they style it and call it. It's very cl- tied into classical Zoroastrian beliefs in our own world, in terms of the great hero, the one Azora Mazda figure and whatever agents thereof they are going to fight back the great evil. Uh, it is something that every culture share, at least most cultures, share in, the, uh, in their own terms, their own terminologies, and their own histories. In Westeros, particularly in the North, it's styled as the last hero. Um, as he, the, he wielded a sword and fought back the others the first time that they came. It crosses cultures. It is a very important aspect of so many different religions and beliefs. And throughout the books, and including the shows, the reason Melisandre's friggin' here and originally invested in the Stannis is because she said that he was Azor Ahai. Numerous characters have presented aspects of this prophecy about who the prince that was promised, another term for Azor Ahai, is and what aspects of the prophecy could connect to certain characters. It's something the fan base has debated and, u- and analyzed Nuggets about for years. It is something that people have pondered from little tidbits and little hints for ages. There's been a lot of evidence that suggests it might be John, whatever Melisandre wrongfully thinks about it, in t- including one famous scene in the books of where she's looking into the flame, she's asking the Lord of Light to show her her, lord, show her the lord, show her the lord's chosen. And she's wanting to see Stannis, but she's not saying Stannis. She's saying it distinctly in this way, and she laments that the Lord only shows me snow. Capital S. Um, from this, from him being born amongst salt and smoke, and all the other aspects of the prophecy, a lot of people have debated John, a lot of people have debated Danny. a lot of people have debated Rhaegar, a lot of people have debated Aegon. It is a countless list of people that debated, of which... Patchface. What? Patchface? Patchface, Stannis, countless people have reason... <laughs> Patchface fits aspects of the prophecy. He does. It's not going to be Patchface. I hate that aspect of the fandom that keeps arguing semi-seriously that it is, but whatever. Arya factors into none of that. Admittedly, the show has always been uncomfortable with prophecy. The show has abandoned almost every other major prophecy or highlighted the fact when certain characters that engage in prophecy are wrong. As I noted earlier, one of the only prophecies the show presents directly, heavily, Uh, And the only one it distinctly creates is Melisandre's prophecy to Arya. This is the show essentially foreshadowing back in season three where it wanted Arya to go. The show clearly, for a while, maybe only really apparent at this moment, wanted Arya to have this moment and to be the one to do this. They've given us foreshadowing for this. They've set it up for this. But... In presenting the story of the books and keeping the various moments of the books, particularly in the early seasons before when they were still just very much directly adapting the books, they gave us the prince that was promised. They gave us Azora High. They gave us this legend. To the point my parents are asking me after these episodes, saying, Well, it had to be John. John's Azura High. John's the Prince that was promised. My dad's never read the books, but he has enough of a background from what the show is known to know these prophecies and know these stories. The show is essentially by having Arya fulfill this, by having her fulfill the role of Azora High, said rather flippantly, eh, all that was just wrong prophecy again, like every other like all the other times we've just pissed on prophecy. I understand that the show gave us enough in its own lexicon to reasonably foreshadow Arya doing this. But the show, at least originally, was adapting a book series and gave us a fair amount of foreshadowing of the high and the Prince was promised, that they've now just thrown away. I'm not content with all of that just being a red herring. I find that to a certain degree dissatisfying that such an important overarching thing in the books, in particular the show is adapted at least some in, is now irrelevant and discounted, seemingly in a
0: heartbeat. Yeah, well, you've got one man to blame for that.
1: Uh, yeah, there's no question about that. The show's ultimately, and I've come to terms with this better than most of the book fan, is,
0: telling its own story. And this is. Has just, to. What'd you say? It has to. It has I mean, to. he's not. He like I said, like I say, with Azura High. Yeah, it's a huge part of the books. The lore is a huge part of the fandom. But he's given us n- a lot of questions and no answers. And I, and, and they, I, they, yeah, that. of course they set it up as there's going to be this Azura High figure because they thought they'd get an answer from the guy who wrote it. And they never did. And they had to go in their own way. And I respect
1: that. I acknowledge that. But I can't help. And it's my disappointment is not directed towards them. They've been telling yeah. their own story for a long damn time. My disappointment, at least with respect to this, there's another aspect I'm going to that I'm disappointed at them too, but my disappointment here is that such an integrally important prophecy, I love the prophecies in the books, the prophecy is the most overarching and important thing in the books that has not ever really been effectively adapted to the screen. The show's cut almost all of it, whereas prophecy is bleeding into every chapter of every book that you're reading. I'm disappointed that one of the most important ones that we have is essentially being written off as an, as an irrelevant footnote. And I can't help feeling disappointed that it ultimately played out in that regard in the show. I agree with you. The blame lies at George R. R. Martin's feet. The show can't be expected to adapt everything that he was going to intend to do when he doesn't tell them how he's going to do it. But I can't help being disappointed that such a highly important thing from book from the early parts of book one has just been left on the cutting room floor here at the last moment.
0: Well, I look forward to doing a podcast with you in 18 years when someone else figu- uh, finishes Martin's <laughs> works and Arya kills the Night King.
1: Oh, God. You will have so much, you know, so much crow you'll make, you will make me eat in that moment. But I do not see it playing out that way in the books. I don't think it's been foreshadowed. And foreshadowing matters a lot in the text for what we, what we see play out. Um, so that, that is one quibble I have. It's more about what we've been left with with a writer who's no longer writing books. Rather than what how the show is choosing to depict.
0: Yeah, well, so this one, so what we have now is is there's been a there's been a massive war. It's World War Three has happened. Um, there actually was zombies. They it's eliminated Washington D.C. and now you rule by satellite from an underground container. Uh, you have no legislative body uh-huh. uh, to pass things through, so this breezes right through in the law. Spencer, good job.
1: Okay, uh, next one I got to do, and this is more of a question for you as to your opinion. Uh, you've read the books. Uh, we, we're, we're both uh, knowledgeable yes. about their subject matter. Uh, you would agree that we do not yet have reason to believe that the Night King exists in the books. No. Uh, matter of fact, we've got reason to believe that the Night King doesn't exist in the books because the Night King as a term refers to an existing, declared, know-that-it-exists character.
0: I I, I think that they took a term um, from a... Uh, an old character, the old, uh, I guess he was the, uh, the, the old Night King. He was the old Lord Commander that fell in love with the Wildling who was a white and all this shit. Yeah. Um, very good. Yeah. He, th- I think they just stole the name. Yeah. I think that what you're going to get in the books is the Great Other, mm-hmm. which would be, w- would be an Other who is, who is mm-hmm. leading this onslaught of the dead. I don't know how that's going to look or feel, but I think it's going to be very different than this sort of like all-encompassing, slow-walking, menacing vill- villain that we saw on the show.
1: And, The show created this because it works and provides both a simple explanation and a simple resolution to an arc. Having a keystone army always gives you an easy way to have the heroes, despite their massive disadvantages, somehow save the day at the last end. It's a classic trope. It works because it gives you an out from an otherwise impossible situation to have an army that can be defeated with a single blow. However, It isn't, I've complained about this before, we've talked about this before, but I'm disappointed that they've turned the Others into essentially a a rudderless Frankenstein monster, rather than creatures with their own culture, their own history, even if it is foreign to us. Previously, George R. R. Martin has said that the Others are like the Fae in classical works, of where they are otherworldly, magical, and highly, horrendously dangerous in a way we can't always understand that they operate under a blue and orange definition of morality, and trying to follow them and trying to understand them and trying to interact with them is asking to be hurt. It's not that they're necessarily evil, it's just that they are so utterly foreign to our sensibilities that it'd be like, you know, a giant stepping on an ant in terms of a moral situation. The others in the books, and distinctly in the early seasons of the show, are showed as having a language, as they're showed of having a culture, are showed as having... Seemingly sensi- sensibilities and characters beyond being the forgotten tools of another people that have turned on their masters and are now just killing everybody in random fulfillment of their end objectives. In, in, wait a
0: second. Wait a second. They weren't turning on their masters. Well, they turned against the children of the forest at one point or another. Uh, well, that's only because the children, children of the forest stood with man. Yeah. I mean, but they, 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 I think they've been pretty consistent. Their, their goal was to kill men. Why did they, they weren't go. They weren't going after the children of the forest. They were. They were killing the children of the forest because the children of the forest were protecting the three eyed raven.
1: Yeah, they've never really explained on the show the timeline of this. We know that in both books and show, the children of the forest allied with man way back in the day to fight the others, but seemingly created the others in the first place. Something like four thousand years after they'd originally made an alliance with men in the first place. The timeline never works in that regard. Um, it's always been confused it's always been something the show added in in a way that never made perfect sense
0: well the show never established the timeline you're talking about The it, show it, it has in the
1: vignettes in, in, the, in the DVD extras the show itself is published with the actors reading them out it has
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's, you, mean <laughs> you, you, you got them there, but uh, <laughs> do you think that they are trying to tell the story, which is that, you know, the children of the forest created this nuclear weapon. They weren't quite prepared for it. They weren't quite prepared for how brutal they were. And then they figured out, oh man, we've really screwed up here and then tried to help man. I have a question for you. Yeah. In the show. Yeah. Do you think there's any children of the forest left?
1: Uh, No, I do. I don't. I think that they showed us all they're going to show us, and so from the show's perspective, there's no reason to inquire further.
0: Oh, no, they're not going to show it. No, 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 I'm just speculating. Like, I don't, they're they're certainly not going to show you Children of the Forest. They've got three episodes left. I just think that, in my mind, I just think there's some Children of the Forest that did what Ghost did during this battle. Peaced out? (laughs) Yeah, just basically found a cave somewhere. I was like, I'm going to hang out here until Uh, this blows over.
1: My overarching point, though, is by making this a Keystone Army, by making the Night King essentially responsible for all of these people and being the only real character among the others they've removed a lot of the mystery and having the arc resolve in this manner makes sense for the show because there is no mystery attached with this. There are no issues of motivation. The show has given you all the motivation that they've invented for the Night King. Um, but it really leaves a lot behind again. And again, lay this at the feet of George R. R. Martin if you wish. Um, but when you've invented something as truly mysterious as the others, As you've left open the possibility that they do have a motivation, they do have a rationale that's unique to them. It's not imposed upon them in any shape or form. To have it wrap up without any degree of additional explanation, to have it end at a mid-season moment, is dissatisfying. And this gets into a debate I've seen the fandom doing a lot this week about what is the overarching focus of the show? What is the A plot and what is the B plot? The show opened with the Game of Thrones being the A plot, but for particularly like seasons two through the present, it's made very, very clear that the Game of Thrones matters jack shit. That it is, the, it is the equivalent of fiddling while Rome burns, effectively, when this looming menace is out there. That that's what really matters. That's the overarching plot. The rest of this is people, you know, rats fighting for crumbs as the Titanic sinks. However... By providing no explanation for the night for the Night King, by making this a Keystone Army and the White Walkers having no independent culture of their own, no reasons for doing what they own, no mysteries to solve, by wrapping this up at episode three of the last season, you're making them inherently irrelevant to where the show ultimately wants to end up. You are framing Cersei as being the actual threat, the actual final boss, and everything that you've now resolved is being a coda that leads to what your actual climax is going to be. And I don't see how that can work. I don't find it satisfying that the White Walkers went out like this without any degree of further exploration, without ending, without being the ultimate threat on episode three with Cersei, the up-jumped villain of this show, being the actual final boss to explore. And I don't know how they can emotionally, in terms of a structure, work it with what we assume is going to happen next. With the same director doing episode five, with them setting up with her having another large army, with them setting up for another battle scene there, if they go that route that they seemingly are telegraphing they are going to do, they're asking for failure. They've had their emotionally climactic moment early. And now they have to try to pace out these last three episodes in a different way. And I'm curious how you think they can do that in a way that works. Uh, Given how much they've invested in the White Walkers and the Night King as being the ultimate villains, the ultimate threat, the only thing that truly matters in a way that the Game of Thrones plainly doesn't. How do they go from here when they have wrapped up their most overarching important plot before the end?
0: Spencer, I I reject the premise of this. You, You act as though you can't have three episodes after the major climax of a series you can you can like you can pull a yeah full you very
1: much you can pull a full loss and end on a dissatisfying moment
0: no not, i mean th- yes this was the major climax of the series but the, so what what were they supposed to do have them walk down deal it with cersei and then come back just so that you can get the death of the night king on the last episode like it didn't work that way like they, the timeline doesn't work but yes the major the biggest the great war the 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 thing everything was going the, the thing that the show was going toward did happen, but it happened with three episodes to go. It's not like we got two seasons to sit through now. That that won't matter. They're gonna land the plane and land the plane is okay. We take the rest of the living. We go. We kill Cersei. We deal with a few more character deaths and we wrap up some some emotional plot lines. Which is
1: very which we've talked before. We would both find disappointing if it is by that by the numbers.
0: Well, you're gonna get that now. So the, you're just gonna get that because they I killed did. the night king and and they're gonna no so, way Cersei wins. So you see in you part see my because point I, well no, I, I no, I I I'm not happy with the the how they wrote season 8 but not for the reason that you say. I mean, you're like you're mad that the big battle happened with three episodes to go. What no. else how else could no, they no, do it? No, 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 no. I'm not I'm not even necessarily mad about that. They could have easily had this
1: battle scene and as we talked about, have the heroes lose. Or they could have had this battle scene paced out in some way different. I'm not necessarily mad that this occurred. It said this episode was incredible. It played out as a very climactic moment. My concern is that, I, I've talked about this before, that the writers have a tendency to put themselves in corners. They have a tendency to put themselves in a situation of where there is no reasonable exit that is ultimately fulfilling.
0: And oh, I wonder, I wonder why they were put in that position. Again, we can't blame
1: George R. R. Martin for everything. They've been writing this I'm sh- going to. They eventually have to write their own show, and they've been doing it for several seasons.
0: Well, what, you know, two seasons uh, and, and then a couple episodes so far this season. My problem is that they got – this; they, they were in an impossible situation because they actually couldn't write their own show because George R. R. Martin did give them main plot points that they had to try to get to. Mm-hmm. So they, did, they weren't told you have a blank canvas go. They were told, well, here's where the books are going. I got you six bullet points. Mm-hmm. So writing to that is pretty tough. And so, no, I don't like it that it looks like they're going to put a bow bowtie on everything pretty easily where they kill the Night King and then now they go kill Cersei. But I do like how they killed the Night King. I do like the episode. And I don't think that it's out of bounds to have the Great War end with three more episodes to go. And I don't think that necessarily sets Cersei up as a boss. The, the main boss. I still think the main boss was the Night King. I just think that the timeline works that now they have to try to deal with Cersei. And Cersei can't win, by the way. I mean, just simply cannot, and that's a matter of science because I have a ten to one bet with you that she <laughs> doesn't win. You haven't informed them of that before they wrote the season. That's a just a matter of science, Spencer. <laughs> but I mean, my
1: my quibble with this: it, a, I'm disappointed with the resolution of the of the overarching plot of the White Walkers that it ended without further explanation, without further development, and that it just framed again that they'd really set them up in a way that is inconsistent in the, from the books in a way that is worse by making them all just mindless zombies serving to one lord, they're just monsters. And I've seen so many things of monsters that just don't have the amount of interest or development that the books and early show were really seemingly going forward. Also, just in terms of wrapping up in episode 3, that can work, but it telegraphs in my mind that it's going to end this show on a very pat predictable moment that I hope I'm wrong about, but I think you I think I think you're agreeing with this that the way they've wrapped up this arc in this episode right now re- sets up the next three episodes as being by the numbers in a way that would be very disappointing.
0: Yeah, I just the Game of Thrones fans are hilarious to me because we root against our heroes. Like it's like, <laughs> God damn it! If Danny and John survive, I'm gonna be so mad. <laughs> well, I mean, we we talk, I need people to die. We, no, I, I, it's not just necessarily a
1: wishing for people to die. It was a way of structuring the season in a way that it had a continual build. It's a way of, so many of these seasons have worked well because they've been building to a moment near the end, having that moment, and then the last episode is the wrap-up attached to it. From this, we get our emotional payoff in episode three, and now we've got three more episodes to lose that build, to lose that drive that we've been having towards, in a way that can work, but it's just almost inherently going to be lesser. It's not going to be something that can rival this moment, and arguably they shouldn't even try. They should focus in a different way. I hope we don't get another battle scene. Oh, you're going to
0: get another battle scene. You you are, because Miguel Sapochnik directed episode five. He also
1: also directed Winds of Winter,
0: your favorite episode. Yeah, I mean, there was a... That wasn't a battle episode. Eh, no, well, more people died in that episode than any except for this one.
1: But that can work. If they just set it up as being the gold company as the new threat, no one's going to care They've literally already confronted the Army of the Dead. Nothing can achieve the spectacle gonna, of that.
0: Gonna have to body check you there. Yes, some people will still care.
1: Some of the characters will care. Fan base is gonna ha- is is gonna view them as just the lesser successor to an already impressive moment. If they if he does a Winds of Winter about this, I'm down. I'm about it. I just from what they've told us and what they've shown, I don't think they're gonna do. And I think the show has written itself into a structural corner and having itself and having it structure out the last season that way.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we disagree. Uh, but that's OK. We disagree sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the time I'm right. But this time there's a chance you're right. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but you are now underground. You're the president. But after this uh, disagreement, you, you're you now Hitler in the bunker. So shot. <laughs> You've been shot. Uh, I now am king, uh, and I do not pass this in the legislation. But no, I, I mess with you, Spencer, but I'd see your point, definitely. Okay. Um, of course, I, I, I was rooting – not rooting for, but I, I thought it would be cool if the Night King won that battle and that sort of played out longer. It didn't happen. But I enjoyed the episode so much, I'm predisposed to, to sort of defend it. And I'm with you there.
1: The episode itself was a remarkable achievement. As, as I said, my main disappointments are is that where it stands among the lore that they've gotten from the books and they tried to set up and develop in the early seasons, and how it represents in some ways the conclusions of plot points that I thought were the lesser successors to otherwise very solid prophecies, developments, and foreshadowing that they drew from the books in the first place. That isn't a criticism right. of this episode. The episode is great in ways I can barely express, but it represents a both a negative thing about what the show does well, what the show doesn't do well, and also a concern that I have about how the show can wrap up.
0: All right. Well, look, Spencer, it looks like we did this in about two hours, which is hilarious because we have now done a shorter episode with the longest episode of Game of Thrones uh, than when we do, like, uh, Arcane Season 1 recaps. So... <laughs> That's it, what you get, audience. You never it, know what to expect. Gave you a little hezzy there. It was predictable. I mean, for a battle-heavy
1: episode, there's really only so much we can talk about. I mean, you can you can only express in words so much. Excellent cinematography
0: with dialogue-heavy episodes. We just got more to discuss. All right, buddy. Well, I enjoyed it. Um, we are going to be back um, for the reaction pod for season eight, episode four. I don't know when we'll get that out. Probably in the probably about Monday. Uh, I'm thinking I'll be able to get that up and online if I don't get a bug in my head and get it out Sunday night. I'm looking forward to it, Spencer. We have a clearly we have a bit of a letdown wrap-up thing episode coming in episode four, but we'll talk about it on Sunday. I'm appreciated you talking uh, through me, uh, through, with me through this episode, especially considering we we lost the very best episode of Got Questions ever last week. We did. We really did. <laughs> Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, I think we have hit it. I think we have summarized in some ways why the fan
1: base has got itself up in knots. It's an episode that is indisputably solid, but may not represent what you wanted the series to be.
0: Yeah. All right, buddy. We'll take a knee for a half hour. Then you got Mangum Reads. Spencer doing doing double duty here today. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. We enjoyed it. See you.